Welcome in to Two Foreign Drafts. Austin Gale here with my guy Mike Renner on Two Foreign Drafts, a Rookies and Draft Prospects podcast. Today we're going to look at Bleacher Report's new NFL draft rankings. Look at those, react to some of those rankings, position rankings specifically. Also going to look at Mike Renner's latest piece for PFF.com, the best and worst NFL draft decision for every team over the past five years. And to finish the podcast, we have Carlos Boogie Basham Jr. and Patrick Sertan interviewed on the podcast. Should be a great one. Let's get it. In studio alone, though, we're by ourselves. Yeah. Quinn out sick. You're only going to see if you're watching on YouTube this shot. And I don't know how to turn on the back camera things here. So the it's fake city, the fake use. city we throw up. So it's going to be a little bit of an interesting look on YouTube. Audio will be just as clean as ever, but that's not going to put us down. We're coming off a dub in trivia last night. Oh, yes, we, we can't are. miss. I'm still riding high, to be honest. This is what four straight for us. You've been around for a couple of them, but. Four straight dubs for the trivia team. We just can't miss. One of the highlights, or I guess low light, was they were asking a question about where Josh Allen went to school. And they said Josh Allen went to school in a city called Laramie, which is in a state with the lowest population in the United States. It's just gifting it to people. Gifting it. I wanted him to say, he went to Wyoming. What city is Wyoming in? Because I had it. I I was in Laramie twice covering the Mountain West Championship against Josh Allen. It was awesome. Cold as hell. It was awesome. Very cool. Um, I wanted to open the podcast with this, though. I had a, I had a little take. I dropped the take on unpaid internships on Twitter. Okay. And it kind of, you know, people are reacting to it, getting some wild DMs and those things. I want, And a lot of people are asking me, you got to tell your life story. You got to tell how you got out of it. Your parents are crazy. How'd you get out of it? We're not going to get into that. Okay. I ran away from home when I was 16, and a lot happened between that and after that and all this crazy stuff. But I will say this about my senior year and sleeping in my car. I was taking so many unpaid internships as a senior and I didn't really have like a huge opportunity to like potentially pay rent when I was coming from my junior to senior year. I'm coming back from a summer camp, my junior, between my junior and senior year where I was not paying rent. I was out there in a summer camp for three months in Maine. When I came back, I was like, you know what? I don't really, I'm not gonna have enough money working just as a, I was working as a editor Sports, the Daily Aztec at San Diego State, which was $8 an hour, 50, up to 15 hours a week. Mm. And I was working as a writing tutor for San Diego State. I think it was like $10 an hour, up to 20 hours a week. And rent in San Diego, I split a master bedroom with six fifty. That's not including utilities. Jesus. Like splitting a room. So, you know, people are saying, well, you couldn't find a crouch, ca- couch to crash on. My second semester, when I got a big, I finally got a job at Fox Sports San Diego that was paid, I paid him 300 bucks a month to sleep on his couch. Like, that's how, how dire straits it was in California. But... In that I time, I think I paid four hundred bucks for like a nice place in South Bend. That's incredible. Yeah. So that yeah. You know, so I come back from this summer camp. I'm like, I'm not going to pay rent. I don't have enough money. I'm going to try and sleep in my car. I, I buy a new car. It's a wagon. Thousand bucks from this girl named Phyllis. Girl, woman named Phyllis. Buy this car. Thousand bucks. I start sleeping in the car in the parking lot. Couple weeks in, I get caught. They cut, you say, dude, you can't sleep in the car. I get caught once. I say, oh, sorry. I was just like in between classes. Second time, they're like, dude, we know you're sleeping in your car. You can't do this. And then. Here comes the mystery. I, you know, I was sleeping. The San Diego State had a 24-hour library. Slept in there a handful of times. KCR, the radio station I worked at, had a 
office space that no one was at at night. I slept in there a handful of times. I would actively go to parties looking for someone to stay the night with. Like, it's like, oh man, I could probably sleep here. I could probably sleep here. I slept with my my girlfriend at the time. And it was was a grind, dude. I was like, for three or four four or five months, I never knew where I was going to sleep that night. I was like, you know, is it going to be my car tonight? Is it going to be this office? Whatever. All because I was writing for like four different site aggregators, you know, all these different places that like, you're producing work for spending time doing and getting paid zero dollars for. Yeah. And here's the, I'll, I'll finish with this. That was a grind. And I learned a lot from it, the sacrifice and all that stuff. People on the internet who are talking about unpaid internships are like, I would never trade that in for the world. And I probably wouldn't either. Like I learned a lot from it. I grew at it, but the onus isn't on the people that are taking unpaid internships. I get that they were valuable. I get that the sacrifice was valuable and that you wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah. The onus is on if you are paying people or if you are hiring people to work and produce work for you, pay them. That's yeah. it. Full stop. And you're like, well, what about the experience? What about the mentorship? It's like, then teach them and mentor them on your own time. But if you're having them complete, send in, produce work, pay them for it. Yeah, I remember when I first even like heard about the concept of unpaid internships. I'm like, so I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, so you're just doing work for no reason. Yes. It's like I, I that blew my mind. It was probably like in high school. And I was just like, that's a thing that people do. Just, some of it is like for college credit, and some yeah. of it's like, oh, you get experience and all this like, stuff. It's like, okay, if it's a college class, I get it. Yeah. If it's for experience, then just teach me. I don't have to produce anything. I don't have to send in work or nothing. Yeah. Teach me. But if it's going to be producing work and actually being a part of a team, yeah. I think you should be paid. But sleeping in my car and sleeping at random people's houses was was an absolute treat. Learned a lot from it. My second half of my senior year, I slept on my buddy's couch for 300 bucks a month. And uh, that's how I got to PFF. But that's also why <laughs> we say, like, people always ask us, well, how do you work PFF? How do you get your job? We say, like, do work. Like, you can do work on your own now. Yes. So you can do work that you enjoy doing and produce it at a place for free somewhere, mm-hmm. like whether it's Twitter whether it's, you know, a, a, a blog that you run, but like just going and writing for an unpaid blog is no different. Like that looks no different for you. Like exactly. Exactly. You if you're looking to gain experience, yeah. gain that on your own time, doing your own work. You know, there were times where I'm getting, I'm working an unpaid internship and say, I can't make it on Christmas. They're like, what are you talking about? It's like, what? Like <laughs> I, this is my time, you know? Yeah. I, you know, anyway, I'm not going to get into it more. I, I do think that, you know, People asking me to tell me how I made it and all that stuff. It's like, that's a longer story. But I will say my senior year, the unpaid internship thing, it, it, it was an interesting one. Wouldn't trade it for the world. But if you are hiring people to work, pay them. That's the, that's, all, that's all I've got on that subject. Let's now dive into um, Bleacher Report's latest draft ranking. So Bleacher Report. Oh, I wanted to touch on, uh, people were asking why, like, what I say about Chris Sims. You know, oh, yeah, that's okay, right. I said I can't take him seriously. Like, why I can't take him seriously. And it's not his takes or whatever that I can't take seriously. I, he does good work. He does the analysis. Like, I trust that. It's the way he presents himself and his analysis as. Absolute. Absolute. As the, like the only guy who does the work. And it's like, that's what I push back on. If you'll think back to the, re, the, the really like the tipping point or like the point where I was like, what's going on with this guy was his, it was two years ago, I want to say, the, after the 2018 season. He did his quarterback rankings from that 2018 season. And he had Drew Brees 10th, Tom Brady 9th. That was the year Drew Brees was second in the MVP voting. It was the year Tom Brady and the Patriots won the Super Bowl, beat the Rams. He had him 9th and 10th. He had guys like Cam Newton, Matt Ryan, Ben Roethlisberger ahead of those two. And he kept saying, they're system quarterbacks, system quarterbacks. Uh, you know, put them in a different system, they're not going to succeed. Well, 
okay, but in that system, they were fucking amazing, uh, the ones, the respective ones. And then what really, like, was the – and when you are the guy who is out on their own limb, which you are calling Drew Brees and Tom Brady the ninth or tenth best quarterbacks mm-hmm. in the NFL, you kind of have the onus of explanation for why you have that. Yeah. Other people, like – other people challenging that opinion, they don't have to say why because everyone believes that Tom Brady is, you know, top five quarterback. Drew Brees, top five quarterback at that time. They don't have to explain necessarily why. And it was Kurt Warner said something about it. And then this was Chris Sims' response. So when you see guys like Kurt Warner doing the very same list and having Tom Brady number one and almost mocking you for your just inability to see it for what it is, like, how do you feel about that? Part-time analyst Kurt Warner, the troll. Oh, no. Like, I don't care what Kurt Warner says. But don't you think... way deeper in the weeds on all these subjects than Kurt Warner. Hold on, hold on, hold on, Chris. So you're saying Kurt Warner is just surfacing this, right? He's not diving deep. He's not he's not looking at the all twenty two. He's just kinda going for the for the names. That's he, all he's I doing. Do. I do. I don't I don't think he's yeah, I think he's taking the easy way out. I'm saying it right there. Yes I am. See, I, I, do. Would... I mean I respect his opinion. I understand he knows knows a lot, but I mean what? you know, I've seen him on the NFL channel like once in the last fifty days. You know, I'm there every day grinding telling you everything about football, <laughs> studying wow. it. And I'm not saying I'm perfect but, yeah, I disagree with Kurt Warner's rankings, so I, I don't care. I mean, great. And so if that's your yeah. response <laughs> to Kurt Warner, a Super Bowl-winning quarterback who I think knows his way around, and it doesn't take much time and effort to watch all the throws of a guy in a season, maybe a couple hours to do so, nowadays with cut-ups and that sort of yeah. thing, that's like you don't lose me with your analysis. You lose me with the way you present it. Like, I, I don't believe in one guy having a crazy take and being like, oh, uh, you know, all credibility lost. It's like, no, I believe he came to that take in reasonable fashion. But when you present it like that, yeah, where as a black and as this analysis as this black and white thing that he has figured out when like, we know it's not black and white, like there's Asians playing in the NFL too. So it's not black and white. Yeah. That's a bad joke. Um, but it's a great, there's a lot of gray area in play evaluation. It's something I push back on here at PFF too when we present things as black and white. And it's like, oh, our opinion came from watching the tape, so it's the correct opinion. It's like, mm, no. No, I no. think there's even, you know, analysts here at PFF, even ourselves, where there's opportunity to be more less black Five and white, and less absolute with yeah. how we deliver takes and deliver analysis. Even recently, Chris Sims said something along the lines of, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that are unqualified to have opinions on this. And it's like, okay, you don't have to be condescending yeah. when this, you're, what you're doing is like watching 21 year olds and seeing if they're good. Like I, I, I have this joke all the time with my friends. It's like, my job is largely this guy footballs better than this other guy footballs. And like, it's a joke, it's a game. And yeah. I do think that delivering analysis with condescending tones and stuff is something that a lot of people can check themselves on. But that was it. I, Sorry, I, 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 appreciate, I appreciate the explanation. And like, he, and like I, I'm not challenging his actual quarterback knowledge. I, believe in that wholesale but that's the presentation don't be a dick mike renner's latest novel all right this is from bleach report bleach report put together an all-star team nate tice brandon thorne justice mosqueda Corey giddings to put together a draft board obviously yeah. matt miller is no longer at, uh, at bleach report so they're kind of like i think bringing a combination of people on done to still before. put together oh have kind they of, or like they've they the did for the nfl, NFL yeah like 1000 or whatever was kind of a a group of people scouting the NFL. Yeah. But now they have like this similar take on the NFL draft. And we won't necessarily look deep at their big board because it does look like each analyst, depending on the position group, graded on a different scale. Yeah, you know, some of these I, guys I think there was a little bit of that. You know, some 
So, for example, like some of these guys, I think the offensive line is kind of heavily rated. Like Landon Dickerson is sixth overall. Like that, again, like that's not factoring positional value. To put him ahead of like guys like Trey Lance and Zach Wilson, like you're not you're not going to go into an NFL draft with that as your draft board in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think because there's twelve linemen in the first thirty-two. Like Elijah Vera Tucker that's, is ten. I think that speaks to what Brandon Thorne loves loves Elijah Vera Tucker. Yeah, but he's not drafting him over. I don't think Jamar Chase, some of these other quarterbacks that are listed. You know, you're, like, you're going to factor yeah. in position value. So what we're going to focus on is touching on some of the differences of opinion and highlights in their quarterback ra- or in their position ranking. Starting with quarterback, they have Trevor Lawrence, Fields, Lance Wilson at four, then Mac Jones and Trask. What's your opinion of the Wilson slander? I can see it like there's there's a argument to be made for each and that they are all incredibly talented, but all kind of have their niche of where they really excel. You know, Tre- uh, Trevor Lawrence is everywhere that he's actually kind of on his own tier, but fields, it's like, man, just super accurate with the football. If he makes the decision, if he lets it rip, it's normally a good decision. It's normally on target. It's the let, letting it rip. That's been the problem uh and some just like games this year that were legitimately bad and when you play bad games against better competition that's like those are red flags on your tape Zach Wilson didn't have those Mm -hmm. but he also didn't play good competition yeah and so what he's doing the ease of it in terms of just like having to operate that offense with as much time as he had with the defense he was facing a lot of guys could have looked good now, I think you can still evaluate the throw and how impressive they were, and that's where he stacks up. It's almost like unquestioned the top from this past season in college football and that the throws he was making were the most impressive of any quarterback in this class. But quarterbacking is still, like, not, again, pure arm talent only gets you so far. And then the Trey Lance thing, he's the most physically talented of this bunch, but just... We don't know. Yeah. We just I think you saw know. Mel Kuyper Jr. of ESPN, you know, recently say he was on a call. He does like a national call with a lot of anal or yeah. beat reporters and those things. Talk about Zach Wilson. And like the number one concern for him even is, you know, cupcake schedule. Did not play against good competition. I think he's going to consistently see that knock yeah. as we kind of move forward. Running backs, they have Najee Harris at one, Javante Williams at two, which I thought was interesting. And then Michael Carter of North Carolina and then Travis Etienne. Oh. Putting Carter, so putting Williams at two, over ETN, like you can buy into it if you love, you know, love his game, love, yeah. you know, the, you know, the force miss tackle ability. And I, I think he's very good in pass protection, but Carter over ETN is where I start to like, oh man, I would definitely take Travis ETN over Michael Carter. Yeah. Carter's very good though. Like Carter as the running back three, he's our running back four. I'm not going to, if you're drafting about Carter, he's, he, there are things he does better than Travis ETN. I think he's a better pure route runner than Travis ETN at this point in his career. Um, but man, ETN, I just fall in love with that level of athleticism, explosiveness, what that brings to the table, what that can do. Mm-hmm. You can do more things with ETN than you can with Carter. Carter is just like a very solid kind of all around running back where ETN tend to fall in love with high end and guys like that. Wide receivers, they have a ton of wide receivers ranked in their top 100. So you have a lot there. I'm just going to run through probably like their top 10 and go from there. Devonte Smith at one, Rashad Bateman at two. Jamar Chase at three. Rashad Bateman at two is is that's a that's the highest I've seen Bateman considered yes. in this wide receiver class. And then and, and even like we're saying there's the scale or whatever might be 
and need a little tweaking. He's ninth overall on their board. So not just like that's high, high. It's very high. Yeah. Um, and Nate Tice is the guy who does the YRC rankings. I've had a couple you know, messages back and forth with him. He's a big fan of Bateman, and that's evidenced here, obviously, putting him ahead of Jamar Chase. And then at four, Jalen Waddell of Alabama. Terrace Marshall continues to be higher ranked than where we have him. He, they have him at five. Elijah Moore at six. Rondell Moore at seven. Diami Brown of North Carolina at eight, which I love. Amon Ross St. Brown at nine, and then Tylen Wallace at 10. Some key guys that I think are left out of that are, that is, that's interesting. Amari Rogers of Clemson at 11, Tony at 12, Kadarius Tony of Florida at 12, and then Tutu Atwell at 16 on, on that list. So I think that's, um, I definitely agree with some of the Tutu Atwell dropping. Um, and then, but the Kadarius Tony down at 12, that's the lowest I've seen Tony considered. Absolutely lowest I've seen Tony considered. And I know Nate Tice does a lot of analysis or has a lot of opinions on, you know, these gadget types, these mm-hmm. guys that are like you're going to use in a very specific role and devaluing them compared to receivers that can actually play the position well and run at the X or the Z in different positions yeah. like that. I still think Tony has the capability. He just was used as a gadget type because he was so fucking good at it. Like, yeah, he yeah. was just awesome in that role and that's why you know flora's offense this year was juggernaut with the talent they had so that yeah that that i like the bateman take though feel like i'm not crazy yeah yeah we have like, a wide receiver four. yeah bateman's awesome to me he's closer to the tier one of wide receivers in terms of he can bring you that x skill set you can bring that all around game to the table where you could see him catch 120 balls 1500 yards i i don't see It'd be, I'd be hard pressed for me to see like Elijah Moore, Rondale Moore catching 120 balls for 1500 yards. They feel more like 90 catch 110, 1010, 100 yards, 1100 yards. 1100 yards. <laughs> Fucking ruining that one. Oh, feel man. more like Jarvis Landry has stat lines. Maybe not necessarily Elijah mm-hmm. Moore, but like Rondale Moore, kind of what he's bringing to the table. So, well, well, two more questions on their wide receiver rankings. What do you think? is the biggest reason Terrace Marshall Jr. is considered highly or, or valued highly in this class. And two, they have superlatives on this as well. Best route runner, Tylen Wallace. I did not see that coming. That I did not see that or not see that coming. That one blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, same. I thought you'd have Bateman there. Or, I mean, if you're going to consider him at two. Yeah, Devontae but- Smith probably the best actual, like, pure route runner or Rashad Bateman. Like, if Tylen Wallace is your best route runner – should be higher than wide receiver 10 because should be higher than Amon Ross St. Brown. That's he's just good damn at sure. the catch point and he's fast as well. Not just excess fast. Like I have fast. to bring Nate Tice on. I think uh, he'd yeah. be a good guest on the It'll podcast. Be. We'll work on that. But the, the Terrace Marshall question. Oh, he's physical skill set, I think, is why. Tall, fast, long. It's a good starting point. That'll get you. Yeah. Tight ends, we don't have to talk about this a ton. I mean, they only have three ranked. Kyle Pitts, number one, and then a distance down is Pat Fryer moves of Penn State at two, and then Brevin Jordan at three. I don't think a lot of – there might be some different opinions after Pitts, but I, don't, I think you're. it's kind of what do you want at the position after Pitts. You know, you're not getting, in my opinion, an elite difference maker at the position. Maybe Fryer Muth develops into that. Maybe Brevin Jordan used in the right system, but Pitts is the guy, and then everyone else is kind of like day two, day three targets. Am I right? Yeah, the the tight end class, the thing is, like, there's really only a few that you can really hang your hat on as they can start in the NFL. And I'm not even sure that includes like, Brevin Jordan. Brevin Jordan's going to be kind of gadgety for the position, almost like 
Gerald Everett. Yeah, there you go. Like, you're going to have to have a little different role for him. He's not just your do-it-all, any offense in the NFL. He fits him. That, I think, is Hunter Long. That, I think, is Pat Fryermuth. That's – and then Cal Pitts. And this, that's, like, your three yep. right there that you'd feel comfortable about. Offensive tackles here. Now, this is scouted by Brandon Thorne, who's a big offensive line guru on Twitter. I would definitely encourage you to follow him. Just Google or Twitter search Brandon Thorne. I don't know the handle off the top of my head. But at one, he has Panay Sewell. At two, Tevin Jenkins, Oklahoma State, at offensive tackle. Rashawn Slater at three of Northwestern. Um, Christian Dersaw at four, Virginia Tech. Liam Eikenberg of Notre Dame at five. Sam Cosme of Texas at six. Brady Christensen with the same score as Sam Cosme. Tied for seventh, but right now, I mean, tied for six technically from a number standpoint, but he has him at seventh. Alex Leatherwood of Alabama at eight, and then Jalen Mayfield at nine. That is... Honestly, you know, I've seen a lot of people really like Jalen Mayfield. You know, Daniel mm-hmm. Jeremiah likes Jalen Mayfield. ESPN guys do. Yeah. To see Thorne as low or at least similarly low on Mayfield as we are, I think is very encouraging. Yeah, that's is we're in the exact same range on Mayfield, which again, probably the only person I've seen ha- have him in that range. Uh, the Christian one though is very interesting to me because obviously, graded out extremely well. He's like one of the highest graded players in the country this past yeah, year. Yeah, just. But he's in the same boat as Zach Wilson that he really faced nobody. Like he really, the only guy he did face, Peyton Turner, Houston Edge, kind of got him a few times. Um, so, I, I, and I also I can't believe he didn't go to Senior Bowl. Like yeah, that, that would have been a really good. Eichenberg didn't either. Yeah, I don't think Eichenberg necessarily needed it though. Like this is the highest I've seen anyone be on Brady Christensen. If he goes higher than the third round, I'd be floored. No I'm Walker Little or even third. That one's interesting. Also, he said he considers Jackson Carmen the Clemson offensive tackle a guard, even though I talked to him recently, and he said, and this I think this will play on a future episode, he said multiple, every single NFL team considers him a tackle. Yeah. And, he, and obviously, I mean, he's coming from a little bias, <laughs> and then he says multiple teams see me as one of their top tackles. But I, I, I do think that, I don't think he's lying in that NFL teams see him as a tackle. I really yeah. do like his prospects as a tackle. The problem has been he's still very young. He's like 20, 21 years old with all this athletic ability and still needs to kind of develop technically at the position. Yeah. All right. The other thing I wanted to talk about is Tevin Jenkins. You wrote the article for PFF.com is one of those guys that we are higher on than the consensus right now. The consensus EDP, according to grinding the mocks.com by Benjamin Robinson. And he has him at number two. That's another encouraging sign that Thorne's got our back here. (laughs) Yeah. I I really like Tevin Jenkins. And that's the thing is he uses his hands so well. I I think a lot of just Crying glean into Brandon Thorne's mind. And I follow his newsletter too. If you're really interested in offensive line play, it's a great resource uh, to subscribe to. It loves the technical aspect. Like these guys, outside of maybe Penny Sewell, like the technically sound guys, he's super high on, seemingly. Like that's Christensen. That's definitely Landon Dickerson. That's Elijah Vera Tucker. That's Creed Humphrey. That's uh, Tevin Jenkins here. And that's why he's OT2 ahead of Slater in this one. Interior offensive line, he has Dickerson one, loves Dickerson. Big fan of him. He's number six on their overall board if you use their numerical rankings. Elijah Tucker at two, Creed Humphrey at three. A little bit ways, you know, Wyatt Davis at four, Deontay Brown at five. And then um, outside looking in, Jackson Carmen at eight, Trey Smith at seven, Ben Cleveland of Georgia at six, and then Royce Newman, Mississippi at nine. What is I, I, a lot of interior offensive linemen ranked? What's your opinion of the depth of this class after a guy like Wyatt Davis? I really like it. I, I think now I'm not super high on, you know, Deontay Brown, Trey Smith, but I think they in the right scheme can succeed. I, I think there's a lot of 
a lot of third round type talent at guard center in this draft class that I don't think was necessarily there last year. Interior defensive line. This was scattered by Justice Mosqueda, another good follow on Twitter. This one's interesting. He has Davian Nixon of Iowa. I know a guy that you are markedly lower on compared to the consensus right now. He has him at one, significantly higher too, at 8.51 on his scale. While Jay Tufele of USC at number two at a 7.83. And then further down, Jalen Twyman of Pittsburgh at three. Christian Barmore of Alabama at four. Levi Muzurike of Washington at five. And then Carlos Basham Jr. at six. This considering one, him an interior defensive this lineman. This is like the one position where I was just like, whoa. Like it's it's crazy. The rankings. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel very strong that Barmore is the best defensive tackle in this class. And like the Davion Nixon rating here being that much higher than J2 Fale is how I feel about Barmore and DT2 on the PFF board, which is Lee McNeil. So this is very interesting to me. Uh, the Davion Nixon, I just I don't think he's that physically imposing. Like I, I don't think with his level of grading, which was not good, graded in the 70s in run defense and pass rush last year. With that level of grading, how he performed on the football field over the course of the season, to convince me he deserves to be in that conversation, he better he better be like Levi Wuzurike. I think Levi Wuzurike is probably the most athletic, explosive, physical specimen at the defensive tackle position. And he's not. I don't think Davion Nixon is. All right, moving to his edge rankings. Don't want to read every single one here. We got to get to your article for pff.com but uh at edge he has quitty pay as his edge one rashad weaver at edge two guy i talked to last night who i will say this he's an exceptional interviewer very smart guy talked about his preparation process and how he approaches the game i think anytime you talk to pass rushers like a weaver where he isn't phillips jalen phillips explosive jason owe explosive they have to consistently win with technique their hands and film study and he is that he is a guy that mentally football IQ wise was one of the more impressive football players I've talked to that interview drops I think in a future episode here maybe I think March 8th or March 10th but Rashad Weaver at two Ronnie Perkins at three then Joseph Asai of Texas and then finally some of the names that you've heard consistently mocked in the first round Jason Owe of Penn State at five Gregor Rousseau of Miami at six and then Jalen Phillips of Miami at seven Azizo Jolari all the way down to nine Tryon at 10 Um, what's your opinion of these rankings yeah the Azizo Jolari ranking I was is the one that blows my mind. Because he has Quincy Roche at eight, Aziz Ojolari at nine, which they're just Ojolari is the much better athlete of the two, and they were similarly productive and similarly skilled in how they rush the passer, and similarly undersized to where Roche is what two years older, maybe almost three, and not as good an athlete. That one I just. That would, uh, would blow my mind if I'm like on a draft board, second round, two guys sitting there to take Roche over Ojolari. Yeah, those are those are some interesting rankings, some wild rankings. Might have to get Justice on as well. Uh, linebacker, he actually has Jeremiah Wusukoromo of Notre Dame at one, ahead of Micah Parsons, which that's the first I've seen of that. Mm-hmm. Micah Parsons at two, then Chaz Serafs, North Carolina at three. That is another area where I, that's the highest I've seen him ranked in a linebacker ranking. Zayvon Collins of Tulsa at four, Dylan Moses of Alabama at five, ahead of, at six, Our Nick boy. Bolton of Missouri, and then also ahead of, a few ways down, Jabril Cox of LSU at 10. Yeah, that was, again, the, the uh, Moses, man. I, I If he succeeds in the NFL, I, I think I'd give up on scouting linebackers. If really? He's like really good in the NFL. I just... At the things like that go into 
good linebacking play in terms of like how you have to see the game and key on things and like play fast. It just doesn't do yet. And like physically has it for the position. And I was not necessarily, he was not Micah Parsons in that. He's not as big, not as long, but he has that little explosiveness. But I just, it didn't play well at Alabama. That's all I'll say. Fair. I mean, but I do think that a lot of that has to be projection of him being better, you know, because he is this like yeah, freaky I mean, athlete. I would hope so. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but uh, I definitely think the more I look at these rankings, specifically Justice's, Justice Mosqueda's, I think hearing more about his process to scouting defensive line and linebackers, I think would be interesting because his is definitely, regardless of yeah, whose and opinion like, you're I can't, at. Yeah, because I can't also like make heads or tails of like a theme mm-hmm. to these rankings of like. Because like if you're looking at purely off athletic ability, Chaz Surratt at three, or I guess Chaz Surratt is an athlete, but like measurables wise, I mean, it's short arms, not necessarily like ideal length yeah. for the position. But again, I, I think talking to him about his process, that's another guy we should probably have on on the podcast. I've had a handful of conversations with him on Twitter. Cornerback, this is by Corey Giddings. I actually don't follow Corey Giddings' work, but he has Patrick Sertan at one, Caleb Farley of Virginia Tech at two, J.C. Horn at three, Greg Newsom at four, Asante Samuel Jr. at five. I do think that is where where we've seen a bulk yes. majority of rankings. These are relatively chalky. Yeah, we are we have the same five in the top five right now. And then, then at safeties, we'll finish here. Trayvon Morg at one, Javon Holland of Oregon, my guy, Oakland's own, Bishop O'Dowd grad at two, and then Paris Ford of Pittsburgh at three. Did it just stop there? They it does well, he doesn't have that many safeties in the top one hundred. Uh, but also you have to factor in again, like is Corey Giddings working off the same numerical scale as these other guys? Because yeah. they have like 10 interior offensive linemen in the first top 100. But yeah. um, I love the Javon Holland hype. I, people are going to forget about him. I do think people are forgetting about him because he opted out of 2020. I, I haven't forgotten. Never forget. Where's um, he on your board? 50. 50? So, I love that. Like that. Love that. Let's keep him there. <laughs> uh, well, that's going to do it for the Bleach Report rankings. Let's go ahead and dive into that article you did. Um, I, we're going to work to get Nate Tice on the podcast. Let's work to get Justice Mosqueda on the podcast. We have... Little little tease of the Thursday episode, or no Monday episode, Bucky Brooks of NFL Network. First time we've talked to hey, Bucky. Hey, Bucky. Bucky has had some arguments with you on Twitter. I'm excited to have some discourse. I'm excited to talk about his arguments. process, but should be a good time to have Bucky Brooks on the podcast. Shout good out producer Dave for getting him on the show. Um, Bucky now, Brooks, all time voice, all time voice, dude. That's that guy. From we gotta a, talk about that. Move the Six podcast, which is with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. Encourage you guys to listen. His voice is incredible. It is like notable and and, and yeah. impactful on your yeah. ears. All right, uh, unlike mine. Jumping to your article here. So talk to me about what went into your process about um, identifying the biggest draft mistake and biggest success for each team for the past five years. The process was I looked through all their draft picks and then I decided. Cool. That's <laughs> that, a very cool process. It was. I mean, that's what... In depth. It was. I mean... It was actually a very interesting exercise. I recommend if you really are a fan to just go back and look at some of what you consider you know, the best teams in the NFL, the draft history and what they look like, and some of what you consider the worst teams in the NFL. And I think it's very indicative that the draft is not only a for a this-year decision. A lot of the best teams – Uh, or teams that were like in the Super Bowl hunt, like the Eagles when they won it. That talent was acquired in the early 2010s, the vast majority of that. Now they made the play and got Carson Wentz. That ended up, you know, getting them in the position to where they were, could have, you know, Nick Foles save them in a Super Bowl run. But like that was where it was built because, again, the draft is not just a one, two-year decision. It's not just I have a need right now, so I'm going to fill it. 
like we'll get to with the Jacksonville Jaguars when they thought they were on the precipice of winning a championship. It's if I hit on this guy wholesale and he's a cornerstone, that's a decade of that guy on my team. That like the Julio Joneses of the world, when you really hit on a guy like that, they don't go to free agency. They stay around. Yeah. So. All right. Starting with the Arizona so that's how you Cardinals. Think about, that's how you got to think about the approach to draft. Like a Penny Sewell. I just drafted Austin Jackson this year. I just drafted Robert Hunt. I got my two tackles. That's a decade decision. Penny yeah. Sewell. He's, your, he's the next decade of your franchise. It doesn't have to be. And even if, even if you don't feel like resigning him, year four comes around. You're getting two first-round picks for Sewell like the Laramie Tunsil deal. That, like, that's how you got to think about the draft and the value you can get. You put these in alphabetical order, alphabetical order. Starting with the Arizona Cardinals, your note here for the worst mistake was too many athletic projects. Yeah, and the like, the big, the one that really kind of stands out as decadent was they went Brandon Williams like in the second round, who had just changed from running back to cornerback, and like wasn't good at cornerback, but they're like this guy like falling in love with him and he didn't do shit. I remember like he got thrown to the wolves year one, and then almost never really made it back into the rotation. The Hassan Reddick. Robert Kemdichie, Chad Williams, like they went in on these upside guys. And those are, those are these sort of the stories you don't hear about in the upside. What about biggest draft success for Cardinals? Biggest draft success for the Cardinals was the Josh Rosen decision to trade him, to, yeah. to, to move on from him. I think that was the play that was almost unprecedented at the time to say, we just drafted a guy in the top 10. Everyone was assuming they would do the Mariota which was they had just drafted Titans just drafted Mariota. They were the ones that traded out of, I believe, the number one overall pick for the Rams that year afterwards. Everyone assumed that was the case. No, have some cojones, which is what they did. And their franchise is a much, much better situation because of it. Absolutely. I mean, they kind of, that would have been a, an absurd decision to be drafting number one overall with Josh Rosen at, coming off one of the worst seasons we've seen from a rookie quarterback yeah. over the past decade plus and have Kyler Murray in your lap. And a, yeah. and a coach in Cliff Kingsbury that could win with him or was believed to be able to win with him. I don't, I don't, I have my doubts now, but um, that would have been absurd if they moved on <laughs> and didn't draft Kyler Murray. Can you imagine if they were still trying to like kick the tires on Rosen, like the Jets potentially will be doing with Sam Darnold? Like that would be, I mean, that sets your franchise back so many years. Um, you have biggest draft mistake for the Atlanta Falcons, offensive line desperation in 2019. Yeah, I think it was letting, and this was kind of like a free agency mistake and a team building mistake prior to that. But letting it get so desperate that they had to, they pigeonholed themselves into two offensive linemen, and by pretty much every account, reached on two linemen in uh, Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry in that draft. And then, as rookie offensive linemen tend to do, didn't fix their offensive line problems r- right away. Now, in the future, like I think Lindstrom looks like he's going to be a solid guard going forward. McGarry, jury's still out, but that is the typical. Progression. What we saw from last year's offensive line class is not the typical progression for offensive linemen. It is year three, year four, that you finally get a starting caliber offensive lineman. So invest in that before you need it. And I think that was their biggest weakness was they still, they for years kind of chased that. Was it the 2016 season when they went to the Super Bowl? They were chasing that sort of with the contracts they were signing, with the way they were drafting. And all of a sudden, it led to them. It was the 2017 season. I can't know. It was 2016. It led to them being so desperate that they had to do that, and that was kind of the downfall of the of the uh, Dimitrov era. What about biggest success? 
think the biggest success you go back to that 2016 draft and they needed they needed the linebacker for the Dan Quinn cover three and they needed the box safety for the Dan Quinn cover three staring at them in the face at number 17 overall Darren Lee athletic linebacker pretty much universally agreed upon by everyone except us here at PFF as probably the top linebacker in that draft class no they went Keanu Neal that year and in the second round they go Deion Jones Instead of they could have gone opposite way, like I said, gone Darren Lee, Sua Cravens in the second round was the safety picked right after where the Atlanta Falcons went both, you know, a box safety and a linebacker that they could have needed, both, you know, similarly touted, they picked a good one. Now, Keanu Neal's career got sidetracked due to injury, but damn, he was good at the start of his career. He was that box safety, that guy that you want in that defense. And Deion Jones, obviously, one of the best coverage linebackers in the NFL. Baltimore Ravens, I think this is very apt Wide receiver evaluations. Chris Moore in the fourth round in 2016. Jaleel Scott in the fourth in 2018. Jordan Lasley of UCLA in the fifth in 2018. Marquise Brown in 2019. Miles Boykin, third in 2019. Duvernay, Prochet. It's been a grind. I I respect the commitment to throwing resources. Absolutely. The evals, though, have been sus. Sus. Isn't sus like a Zoomer thing? Is Zoomer a generation? I don't know. Anyway, anyway, yeah, they have been sus. Been sus, but it's been all right because like the Lamar Jackson draft pick was obviously their best one. And and I I don't want to say I hate people that want to really bring up the fact that they drafted a tight end before him. Hate's the wrong word. What's the word? I, the people that always say, oh, but they drafted the tight end. It's like, yeah, but then no, no one else – drafted Lamar Jackson. They traded up to go get Lamar Jackson when no one else wanted him. The Russell Wilson thing. If they knew Russell Wilson was going to be that, well, all you have to be is higher than everyone else on him. And that's consistently... Having that consistent edge leads to better pro, better results in the long run. They believe in Lamar Jackson more than anyone else. And it led to... It's led to a lot of success past couple years. Yep. Buffalo Bills. Obviously, the biggest success being Lamar Jackson pick for the Baltimore Ravens. Buffalo Bills, right. biggest mistake, running back addiction. Man. Think about if they... Well, one... Never traded away Wyatt Teller. Two, if they had just gone guards third round the last couple of years instead of Devin Singletary and Zach Moss, they would have been a much better situation. Like they didn't even try. To, they didn't even try to give the ball to those guys against the Chiefs this yeah. past year in the NFC. Rightfully so, game. though. You know, yeah, like that like was the right decision. Stuff. But it's like don't spend that capital on running yeah. backs because again, it comes back to what we say. You got a bad running game. You want to fix your running game? Draft off the line. And biggest success for the Bills, Josh Allen easily i mean and i don't think they get enough credit for they traded up they were at 12 they gave up two second round picks that year to go up which is a hefty price to pay you know to go from 12 to 7 to give up pick 53 and pick 56 like they did to get josh allen now a couple years of struggling to say the least objectively not good quarterback play before it paid off and i think it's gonna and again it's not a two or three year decision when you are making these things at the top of the draft you should be looking for the next decade of your franchise that's going to pack the next decade of your franchise carolina panthers worst mistake anything after the second round that is brutal yeah they just haven't gotten anyone after round two now marty hurdy was fairly solid in terms of evaluating talent early on i don't think they have any real big swings and misses uh in his era there but they really have Corn Elder has been their most profitable, shall we say, non 
pick after second round. 68.5 grade this past season on 411 snaps. That's your best pick. So. Corn Elder, actually, fun fact, was one of the first prospects I ever interviewed. And it was back, back when I was in college. Um, he was, uh, when he was with the Miami Hurricanes, he was also the guy that um, ran back that special teams kick, I think, against Duke or something, like a big return to win the game. I don't remember exactly, but I talked oh, about it. Oh, the one where he was maybe down? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Lateral? Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah, he, he was yeah. the guy. He talk, talked about that play. It was also, cool. to shorten Cornelius, which is his full name, to Corn. I always respected that. It's fire. Like, to shorten it to, like, probably get Cobb of Corn. It's objectively not a super cool thing to be associated with, but Corn rocks it. He owns it. Owns it. Chicago Bear, or no, biggest biggest success for the Panthers? Oh, they're second-round steals. They've been exceptional uh, drafting in the second round, whether it was Jeremy Chin this past season or uh, the name's eluding me and who else they got in the second round here. One second, got to look it up. All right, look it up. What are you talking I, I think Jeremy Chin, though, he didn't, like, grade as, like, expected for people. People were expecting him to grade as, like, one of the best safeties in the NFL because he was making a ton of plays. He had the two, I think, defensive touchdowns in one yeah. game. But um, still, like, you saw a lot of bright spots for a player that was playing bad competition a year prior, didn't have an offseason, you know, didn't have an offseason to prepare for the NFL and still, like, already hit the ground running. James Bradbury, Taylor Mouton. I'd throw Curtis Samuel in there. He was a good for a, sec- for a second-round pick, I still believe. Uh, Dante Jackson. Greg Little, probably your only whiff there so far. Man, but to get that, that is quite the list in the second round. That's a good list for a second round. Absolutely. All right, Chicago Bears, I love how you put this. Do I have to say it? Do I have to say it? Trading up from, what, three to two to get Mitchell Trubisky was the biggest mistake with the Chicago Bears. The three to two is always just like the chef's kiss. Yeah, it is. How disastrous. It's like you moved up a spot with the team who wasn't going to pick Trubisky. And they ended up picking Thomas, right? And you would rather them have picked Mitch Trubisky in front of you. It would have saved you a lot of heartache bears fans i'm sorry about what about the biggest one. success biggest success was they've actually they've given away a lot of draft picks but they've low-key added some good talent in the late rounds whether it's darnell mooney this past year in the fifth round whether it's uh Bilal nichols in the fifth round a few years ago eddie jackson in the fourth round tree cohen in the fourth round they've been solid in the later rounds where adding talent like that not a lot of teams do. Like we just said about the Panthers, no one after the second round. That's a rarity. Cincinnati Bengals, biggest mistake, and I think this one's obvious as well, is John Ross at, at number nine in 2017. That has – that. I mean, that's led to a lot of different – like Bengals, you know, trying to fit him into the offense and these different things. That has negatively impacted them for the past three or four years. Really, really sad that Quinn couldn't be. Yeah, I know. I wish Quinn could have a comment on this one. But the, the thing I always, like, look back at, and just die laughing about. They want Marvin Lewis wanted to switch him to cornerback as a rookie. That's when he should have just known it's over. Yeah, like that, it, that it was cut bad. him then. If you're gonna switch your top ten pick, who's a wide receiver, to cornerback, he's, he's, de- he's dead in the water. Yeah, and uh, we'll see if someone signs him this off season free agency because I hope not just for the story. That's a, that's an all timer that we could tell about him. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Best decision for the Bengals, Jesse Bates, man. They haven't had a ton of overarching success at certain positions, but getting Jesse Bates when I think he came off the board as safety three in that draft class uh, back in 2018 at 54 overall, you would have been hard pressed to see a lot of people evaluating Jesse Bates as that highly in that draft class. And they made the play and now he's you know, arguably the best safety in the NFL when Derwin James is out. Yeah, and I think he's going to get paid like the best safety in the NFL here pretty soon. I think yeah. the Bengals would be smart to give him a contract extension. Everything I've Terrell heard, Edmonds got drafted before him. 
Yeah, that's for, bonkers. Uh, yeah. Farcical, maybe. Um, I think the other thing, too, is that from everything I've heard with people who've been in the locker room for Cincinnati, is like he's a big vocal leader, big team leader in that room. I do think that he's going to stick around in Cincinnati for quite some time. Cleveland Browns, biggest mistake, 2016. Yes, that was such a bad draft, man. That was like, <laughs> and we'll get to their biggest sort of best decision. But 2016, the evaluation aspect of the 2016 draft was ass. You know, Corey Coleman at 15, Emmanuel Ogba at 32, Carl Nassib 65, Sean Coleman at 76, Cody Kessler. Those guys, Emmanuel Ogba, I think, is now starting and is maybe like a competent starter. Those other guys aren't. Joe Schobert at 99, our boy Joe Schobert, the one who I loved, who I got the Browns to draft, by the way, by telling Bobby Slowick how good he was. And his brother was the linebacker's coach of the Browns at that time. So welcome, Browns fans, for that one, even though that's definitely not how it actually probably ended up going down. But that was the only, that's the only saving grace, and I think they had like 17 picks. And I always said that the biggest mistake Sashi Brown made, in my opinion, was not investing in the secondary. Like he, Ogba, Nassib, those were low ceiling edge guys. Those were like, yeah, you could have taken, you had that many picks. You could have taken corner, corner, corner. Like you could have gone the Bucks method very soon and built yourself a good secondary. And they didn't draft, I think for two drafts, uh, they drafted one safety in Jabril Peppers, who was like a box safety. He drafted no deep coverage players in his two drafts. That was my big scrub. Should we move to Dallas Cowboys? Oh, the biggest. And then the biggest actual, like, good thing to come out of the Browns was the tank was the good thing. Like, the the actual acquiring of all that draft capital is why they went, what, 11-5 and last year? Yeah. Made the playoffs, won a playoff game, and now have $20 million in cap space this upcoming offseason? That's why. Is because, and they even spent money, some reckless money on, like, a Jarvis Landy contract where they did a, a, tr- a trade and then pay a guy which is like we always push back on trades like that they spent some recklessly from then on but they still have 20 million dollars cap space and are coming off a playoff win they're in a good spot because of the foundation dallas cowboys worst draft decision ezekiel elliott over jalen ramsey <sighs> haunter man this one again it's a it's a decade-long decision yeah jalen ramsey right now fans feel a lot different about the Cowboys. Uh, Plus, like I, I think it does matter when you draft a running back that highly and he does, quote-unquote, pan out, play well, yeah. as you'd expect for any running back to yeah. come in to that situation, drafted that highly, then you have to, you almost feel like obligated to pay him while he's vacationing in Cabo. You know, like he, they paid him a ton of money to play running back for the Dallas Cowboys. And any running back, I think the New York Giants are going to be in a very similar situation. Like the New York Giants are likely going to break the bank for Saquon Barkley. And he's a very good player, arguably the best running back in the NFL when fully healthy. But hitting your cap that hard for a running back is very difficult to overcome, as the Dallas Cowboys are currently trying to do when they had one of the worst defenses we've ever seen and let Byron Jones walk out the door. Yep. And it's, and even if, you know, worst case of the Jalen Ramsey, like it didn't work out in Jacksonville, they got two first round picks in return. It still worked out for them yeah. in Jacksonville. Uh, and best decision. The that- best decision, I think, has been their wide receiver scouting. Or wait, was Dak in that one? Was Dak not 2016? Oh, my bad. It was Dak Prescott. Okay. Oops. <laughs> Definitely think Dak, Dak Prescott's Prescott. been quite easily 135 overall. Um, 
one of four, like I said, over the past decade, one of four guys drafted outside the first round to turn into legitimate starters. You got Russell Wilson, you got Kirk Cousins, you got Derek Carr, and you got Dak Prescott. Andy Dalton. <laughs> you got Dak Prescott. So that's... <laughs> we need Quinn back. That one r- truly was a... Even if, again, everyone likes to bring up, they like Connor Cook more. Well, they were high on Dak Prescott. They had one else. Yeah. Uh, Denver Broncos, biggest mistake, the quarterback position. Paxton Lynch, Chad Kelly, Drew Locke. Yeah, and it, and it goes back to the not making the play, not getting your guy. I find it hard to believe that Paxton Lynch in that draft class was their guy. Maybe he was. I don't know. But the teams that we see that are going to be on this best list of deci- list of best decisions. They went up and got it. Josh Allen, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes. They went up. Lamar Jackson even went up and got her guy. They stood pat for Paxton Lynch. That's this in the second round for Drew Locke. Like that, they got the also rans. They got the guys that were picked over. So that's why we say in this just draft, you're in a spot. Go get your guy. Denver Broncos. And best decision for the Broncos? Justin Simmons. Yeah. 98 overall in 2016. Not a position where, not a spot where you think you're going to be getting an all-pro caliber safety. I mean, and a guy that could be walking this offseason. I think they're going to attack him ultimately. Yeah, There's no chance they don't take him. Like the safety tag is a joke right now. Oh, yeah. It's one of the lowest paid positions in the NFL. 13 million is what it's going to cost to tag him. Nothing. It's a joke. Detroit Lions. Biggest mistake, positional value. I think you had a tweet recently like where they're just like complete disregard for drafting positions of high value. It's been it's been tough for a Lions fan. They have a buddy who's a Lions fan. And this past year was the first time he's like, okay, like we started drafting, you know, actual positions that can make an impact on the football field. But they had nine top fifty picks over from two twenty sixteen to now. Two of them are running backs, two of them were linebackers. One being Jelani Tavai, at linebacker, who's a two-down linebacker, I would just say. Basically, the running back of linebackers. Uh, a center, a tight end, a nose tackle, and then one OT and one cornerback. Two, two positions out of nine that we would say are valuable positions. That's the NFL would say valuable positions. You know, yes, I, again, it's the like NFL the NFL, pay. I that tweeted that out a couple of days ago. It's like yeah. the NFL values quarterbacks, pass rushers, and then off to tackles, wide receivers, as the most valuable positions in the NFL, as evidenced by how much they fucking pay them. Yeah. It's not like this mythical spreadsheet analysis of what positions are valuable. Like, no, this is how much they cost. Yeah. This is how much they cost when you franchise tag them. This is their average market value. They are the literal valuable positions. You aren't drafting them in the first round. If you aren't drafting those valuable positions in the first round with that fixed spend that comes with rookie contracts, you're making a legitimate mistake. And the almost tragic irony here is their best decision was Kenny Galladay <laughs> a valuable position wide receiver in at number 96 overall in 2017 that was their best decision Green Bay Packers worst decision drafting for the mythical future I'm sure there's going to be some Jordan Love discussion here yes and it's not even the Jordan Love discussion honestly the that pick was Wasn't the best worst. pick yeah. of their top three <laughs> that year but guys who aren't going to make the again and again positional value but also just guys who can make an impact on a football field for a team that's good. We talk about drafting for your situation and knowing where you are. And again, it's not 
it's not saying it can't be this decade decision. That's why I don't really hate the Jordan Love pick. But a guy that can make an impact in the second round for a decade on your team is not A.J. Dillon. The fullback that you draft in the third round is not making an impact for a decade on your team. Best case scenario, you're paying them $8 million to $10 million in their second contracts. And that's the best case? <laughs> that's also one of the worst cases. So scenarios. that's why like, that was... It was just a complete misread of where they were. Biggest success for the Green Bay Packers. The 2018 fleecing that they pulled off in the first round. Now, I still am a little salty that they didn't get Derwin James because he fell to them. I never thought he fell Everyone to them. that passed on Derwin James, any fan, is salty. I'm salty. But they got the second-best player in that draft, positional-wise. So I'm not that salty. Um, 14 overall, sitting at 14 overall. They trade back to, I believe it was 27, with the New Orleans Saints. And get another first-round pick in return. Go back up for, I believe it was a third, to go back up and get Jair Alexander. Then that first-round pick from the next year turned into Darnell Savage. You revamped your entire secondary with one trade. Two valuable two trades, but one fleecing of a trade. And that first-round pick that the Saints trade up for turned to Marcus Davenport, who, good player, not with two first-round picks. No. Very hard when you're trading up, and we talk about this all the time, when Mickey Loomis, you know, an aggressive GM, is trading up multiple picks to go get a non-quarterback. It's very hard to get that value back in return. Because as good as Marcus Davenport could be, and he has not been even probably top 10 at his position in the NFL, it's going to be very difficult to, like, be more valuable than two players, (laughs) two first-round players. Like, how how do you even do that? Literally, how do you do that? So um, it would be tough. All right, biggest mistake for the Texans. Larry Tunsil trade and then forcing themselves into the the like similar to the Atlanta Falcons we spoke to recently like forcing them into needing offensive linemen when they drafted the guy out of Northern Illinois Max Sharping I think is what his name was and then the other uh, Titus Howard was first round then Sharping yeah Titus Howard in the first and Max Sharping in the second because they needed offensive line help and now those guys both projects at each position have been moved around up and down that offensive line and they've never really been able to come back from that Larry Tunsil trade so much that their starting quarterback Deshaun Watson wants out He's the he has been hit the most combination of sacks and hits than any quarterback over the past three years. Yeah, and I think the Laramie Tunsil trade is a big reason why. Here are their, I mean, the picks that they've had in the first two rounds since the Deshaun Watson trade, which is, and then the Laramie Tunsil trade. They had Titus Howard, Lonnie Johnson, Max Sharping, and Ross Blacklock. Those guys haven't made a fucking bit of impact for the Texans. That's how you. That's how you. Go in the toilet is when you're not getting anything from your first and second round picks. I mean, that's how you win four games with a top five quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. What's the best decision? Getting the top five <laughs> quarterback in the NFL. Now, the Sean Watson trade. Again, they made the play. Got go aggressive. And they were in the 20s, 25 or so. I can't remember off the top of my head. They were in the 20s and it kind of knew everyone's like, they need, they're like, people were mocking Deshaun Watson falling to them before I remember in that year. Um, but again, getting aggressive and doing it like that changed their franchise from there. And then they, you know, the decisions after that also changed the franchise. But they still have the most valuable asset in the NFL right now in Deshaun Watson. I think teams could afford to get even more aggressive at the quarterback position when trading up and those things. I yeah. think there's, you know, you talk about teams that are drafting after 16, 17. It's like, oh, they probably don't have the horses to move up. It's like, find a way, dude. Find a way to go. If you don't have a good quarterback, find a way to go try and get one. You know, yeah. being in this bridge quarterback, uh, he's kind of good situation, is the worst situation in the NFL. Because also the cap space that you get from the young quarterback is three quality starters in free agency. Yes. So if you gave up three picks... 
for it to go get that guy. You'd have to hit on all three of those picks to basically say that it's not worth it. Indianapolis Colts' biggest mistake for them, edge evaluation. Yeah, and, and they, they've fallen trapped to the non-day two edges, or non-day one edges, which we keep saying they, they don't last outside the top 30 to 40 picks. The, the NFL can evaluate talent at that position. They I mean, are, it's the second highest paid position in the NFL. Like, I mean, you yeah. look at, I, I remember I tweeted that out recently. Like, I think it's like 11 or 12 of the top 15 paid players that aren't quarterbacks are edge rushers. And, and yeah, when they don't hit free agency, so it's teams want them highly. And the year is an athletic and physical skill set that translates. And they've, the, the guys they've drafted have kind of had that, but Kermoko Ture, Taekwon Lewis, Ben Banigo, Terrell Basham. They've thrown these resources at that position, but that's not where I would be throwing the resources. Like some of that's because of their draft strategies. They trade down. They're getting these picks on day two. But edge talent, and I think they kind of realized it with the DeForest Buckner trade. That true difference makers on the long the defensive line, the NFL knows. You know, the DeForest Buckner out. was top 10, and everyone kind of could tell, yeah, that guy can, can ball. He'll be good in the NFL. And so they traded the first rounder for him, but that that's definitely there. Worst. Even when talking to Dr. Eric Eager, who is a data analyst and I think the vice president of research and development here at PFF, he talks about edge as one of the more stable, predictive positions going from college to pro because of how predictive measurements, athleticism, and those things are for pass rushers. Like pass yeah. rushers with length, explosiveness, and bend, and you know the three cone speaks to that is are the ones that play well in the NFL. And those are the ones that it's very easy to see them going in early in the first round. Like if you clock good times in the 40, 10-yard split, good jumps, vertical and broad, and then also yeah. burn a three-cone, you're going to be valued highly because those guys tend to have success in the NFL. Even a guy that we were lower on that is this like athletic freak, Rashawn Gary, has started to pan out. You know, started to play better at least of late, maybe better than we expected down the stretch here. What's the best decision for the Colts? It's the tradebacks. Like they've acquired so much value from consistently trading back, consistently gaining more picks. They've drafted over in five years 46 guys. You know, you're allotted seven a year. That would be 35 over that span. Wow. They have 11 more picks than they were allotted, you know, OG allotted. So that's a that's how you build a young, talented defense that is now still top 10 in cap space, or top five in cap space in the yeah. NFL. Uh, Jacksonville Jaguars worst decision regular season Lenny like how you phrase that Lombardi Lenny is a different story getting him on the street off the street and signing him and ha seeing the success he had was awesome for Tampa Bay drafting him at four overall was probably never a good decision yeah it's funny because their best decision 2016 just a true all-timer over not just this span but like NFL history and the talent they added in Jalen Ramsey Miles Jack Yannick Ngakwe easily might be their best decision was that draft 2017, they go Leonard Fournette, Cam Robinson, Dwayne Smoot. And, and I think that was the year um, they hired Coughlin. And this was the tone setter draft. And this was what they thought was going to get them because they didn't, because again, they were the team that didn't have the quarterback or the, they had the middling quarterback and Blake Bortles at the time that they were trying to build around him to try to make, try to put lipstick on the pig sort of thing. And it was also, I remember that whole draft 2017 pre-draft everyone's like they don't really have a need at four who are they going to pick uh you know running backs they're only on the roster because they had signed all these free agents and i was like draft marshawn fucking Lattimore. you have aj bouye 
you have Jalen Ramsey. If you put Marshawn Lattimore in the slot, you are gonna. You might. They might be Super Bowl champions right now <laughs> if they had drafted Marshawn Lattimore. They would have had the best. They would have had an all-time defense. No one would have passed on them. And what about? But um, then they draft Leonard Fournette. Yeah, Kansas City Chiefs. And you mentioned best decision there. Can't. Yeah, Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, best decision. Patrick Mahomes trade. Yeah. Again. And another unprecedented type of move where. They came up from the 20s. They were in the playoffs the year before. With Alex Smith. They Alex could have Smith. easily been complacent. For a quarterback that, like, they liked. They traded for before that. They could have been, just said, build around them. One more piece. That's what gets us over the hump. Patrick Holmes, which got you over the hump. You have a much, they have a much worse roster now than they had back then in terms of, like, complete talent. They had a better roster back in 2016 season before they drafted Patrick Holmes. They're not wearing as good. Yeah, because Tom Mahali, uh, Derek Johnson, Johnson, yeah, Marcus Peterson, I think was on that team. Um, but the worst decision, I think this one's obvious. Frank Clark trade. Not only did they trade what multiple picks, including a, a first and a second, first and a second for Frank Clark, and then this season, the three highest paid non quarterbacks in the NFL this season: yeah. Aaron Donald, Khalil Mack, Frank Clark. Yeah. Paying him that much money, putting him on that you you traded a first and a second round pick to give yourself the opportunity to put him on this type of deal, forcing him to have to pan out and to be one of the like top three defensive players in the NFL, and he has just not been that. And that was the year that like some legitimate edge talent hit free agency. You had Trey Flowers in free agency. You had Darius Smith in free agency. You had guys who could rush the passer hitting free agency, and they decided to give up two picks to get a guy who was, was good in Seattle, has been was okay his first year was not actually good at all this past year for the Chiefs but like and so people always say oh but they won the Super Bowl justifies it it's like they could have won the Super Bowl this year if they had Zedaria Smith and a first and a second round pick that could also make an impact on that roster it's not easy it's not just a it doesn't want it doesn't justify just one Super Bowl it doesn't justify every decision made before that it doesn't mean that the Breland Speaks pick was great it doesn't mean that Sammy Watkins signing was great because he had a couple catches in that Super Bowl. It's like that if you evaluate the decision and that money could have been used on much more, like the other options at the time were better for you going forward. I'm really happy with how you structured this. I'm glad you, you know, to speak to like the, I know you said the process was looking at their draft, but like how you structure it to like actual like overarching thematic decisions, not necessarily like this player and this. I know Frank Clark's a little bit different, but uh, going to Las Vegas Raiders, worst decision here, Las Vegas Raiders, character over talent. And I think that was coming with the Mike Mayock decision, you know, bringing in Mike Mayock. And he spoke to that in that process, bringing in Cleveland Furl, who was a leader on a very successful team. Obviously, Jonathan Abram, who was like that tone setter on the back end. And I think there's also character over talent. You have it listed in the thing. It's character over talent and positional value because they've also had some disregard for that in Jonathan Abram. Obviously, Josh Jacobs uh, um, coming in. I think that's been some concern for me as well for the Raiders. It is it's funny to me. I, I've seen Raiders fans being like, just just imagine when Josh Jacobs plays like he did, you know, in 2019, how good this offense will be. It's like, well, they were a lot better offensively this past year than in 2019. So, like, it his impact, you don't want him getting more touches. Like, his impact obviously wasn't how the offense came and went. It was the passing game and what they could do in that regard. So... But it was kid. Nelson Aguilar. Nelson Aguilar yeah. was a more valuable player to the Raiders in 2020 than Josh Jacobs was. Full stop. Don't but, quote graphic that because yeah. I don't want Raiders fans 
killing me, but like that's fact. I, I do think Nelson Aguilar was a bigger part of this team yeah. in 2020. But the 2019 pick your draft, 44 picks in the top 40, and you came away with not one impact starter yet, two years in. That's, and those picks, read those out. Cleveland so Furl. Cleveland Furl, Josh Jacobs, Jonathan Abram, and Trayvon Mullen. That was what he came away with. And it's just, that's why the defense is what the defense is. Yeah. I mean, that's another one, too, where, like, you know, that John Gruden quote where, like, pass rushers are good pass rushers are hard to find. Like, they've tried. Cleveland Furl, Max Crosby, Arden Key, Maurice Hurst, like, they've tried. But, you know, when you're not spending, well, they did spend a first-round pick on Cleveland Furl. But like Brian Burns was available, Josh Allen was available. Oh man, and they're they're I can see not you know Brian Burns was a different type of player, but their decision for Furl over Allen, Allen a high character guy by all. Oh, accounts. absolutely, like, guy who went through a ton of struggles yeah. as a kid and like really high character guy. Was that they thought Furl could be a better six tech? That was that what I remember. We could play better head up and tight ends when the only like. Furl and Allen were almost identical in terms of size, height. I think Furl had a half-inch longer arms was the biggest, only difference. And Clint Furl, like, to his credit, has played a lot better of late. Yeah, and I think uh, he's played really well against the run. Like, we had him in, like, the 30s in that. Like, we thought he was good. Mm-hmm. We just, like, there was nothing about him to use the number four overall pick on him. When, again, that's a lottery ticket that could pay off in a big way. That's another thing I'll add to the Raiders' decision-making process, too, is that we've consistently seen them overdraft compared to consensus boards, like with Colton Miller, Damon Arnett, Cleveland Furl. You're looking at yeah. some, a lot of those picks were up there, top five, top 10, biggest reaches, reaches obviously subjective, but according to consensus boards that factor in multiple analysts. Like I do think that they've been, this is our guy and we are getting our guy. Like they've always, I think, been really privy to that um, method of drafting. What is their best decision? It's the Maurice Hurst. They took advantage of whatever that slide was from Maurice Hurst. Um, pass rushing grades in the high 70s the last two years. I still don't use him as an every-down player. We'll see if that changes on um, a new scheme here. But he's been a good like situational pass rusher on the interior. He's been their best for sure. So yeah. Los Angeles pick 140 is you, you don't get that every year. Los Angeles Chargers, the offensive line being their worst mistake. I mean, they have not you know they have not been able to find it there. Max Turk in the third round, 2016. Donovan Clark in the seventh in 2016. Forrest Lamp in the second in 2017. Feeney in the third. Dan Feeney in 2017. Sam Tevy in the sixth in 2017. Scott Questenberry fifth, 2018. Trey Pipkins third, 2019. They have not been able to find it. They have not been able to find offensive linemen. And no, none of those Ooh. picks were first rounders. Highest pick yeah. player there was Forrest Lamp in the second, but none of but them still you should... have panned out to be successful. Some of them have started, but I don't necessarily think yeah. I don't necessarily think starting is a um is a badge of honor for this group here. Yeah. I still can't believe Forrest Lamp. I, I really liked him coming out. The ACL right away kind of just started him down a bad path. But man, they've all whiffs, like not a single like Tevi out I guess Tevi for a six rounder has outplayed what you'd expect from a six-rounder, but that's the best thing you can say about their offensive line drafting. Yeah. What about best decision? Best decision was the Herbert. I mean, I mean, wholesale to Stan Pat, and we talked about every other guy, the quarterback, they went up and got these guys. Stan Pat and get Herbert. Quarterback three in the draft. Two other teams evaluated quarterback position did not have Herbert as the top guy. It is a dub. Mm-hmm. And again, it's going to pay off big dividends for... Decade plus. Where was Justin Herbert on PFS draft board overall? In the 20s? He was in the 20s, yes. Let me go 
take a look. But the reason I asked is someone reached out and said, you know, what's the biggest reason you think Justin Herbert and others, or no, companies and others missed on Justin Herbert? And I do, it's like, did you never think he was going to be good? And I think the, the, the response I had to this guy who was sending me a message was like, we thought Justin Herbert could be good. We just didn't have the percentage chance he was this good this early as likely as it was. Because obviously he did it as a rookie without an offseason, without a preseason, all these things. Like we said, Justin Herbert has the physical traits, the tools, the ability to be a very damn good quarterback in the NFL. I just think our conception of how likely that was, I think, was lower than what it actually was. So he was 30th on the draft board. And it it was also... What was the high end for Herbert? It was what I, in my head, was like worrisome because he kind of was, he shrunk in a lot of big situations back in college. That was kind of his MO. And even the, and that was when everyone was championing him, him for the Pac 12 title game and the Wisconsin Bowl game for his play down the stretch because that was like a new thing we had seen from him because all the other big games throughout his career kind of came up flat. And he, but even like in those, you watch him as a passer, and that was not – it wasn't winning as a passer. I think he had less fewer than 200 yards in both those games. It was more with his legs in both those. So that was the biggest thing with me. It was like showing up in big games. He was not his thing over the course of his college career. Still TBD in the NFL. Buddy, so, I hate to but derail the, the segment. I really do. But Chris Sims just dropped his 2021 quarterback rankings. And can I just read them to you? Oh, I, can we just talk about this, please? Zach Wilson won. Trevor Lawrence, two. Okay. Mac Jones, three. Oh. Kellen Mond, four. Justin Fields, five. Trey Lance, six. Interesting. Zach Wilson ahead of Trevor Lawrence is obviously a big one, but I mean, at least we value those players as top three players in the draft, yeah. top two players in the draft. To have Mac Jones ahead of Fields and Lance, this is the first I've seen it. To have Kellen Mond in the conversation and ahead of Justin Fields and Trey Lance, I mean, we got to get him on the pod or something. So we ha- uh, th- this is this is process we haven't seen. These are would, results. This is evaluation yeah. we just have not seen. Yeah, I'd like to hear an explanation. I I'd like to say. get Kurt Warner's take. <laughs> That's I mean, again, no one's. We just talked about not being condescending, not being rude, but that is an opinion similar to some of the stuff we saw in the Bleach Report rankings, yeah. where it's like this is very different to how the consensus sees this quarterback class. Would love to hear your process here. Yeah, I, I just. I have no take until I hear the process. You know, Jim Nagy invited Kellen Mond to the Senior Bowl and loves his guys down there in Mobile. I don't think he has Kellen Mond over Lance and Justin Fields. I'll say that right now. It's probably true. That is um, wild. That is wild to say the least. Let's get back to the uh, segment here. I had, I mean, I had to bring it up. I just saw it on the timeline. Someone's got to talk about it. Yeah. Los Angeles Rams, their worst decision over the past, um, over the over the past uh, five years, seven years of bad luck. Seven years out of first round pick, they're gonna go. And that's not bad luck. It's gonna be. It's gonna be turns. That's not seven years bad luck. That is bad decision making, right? Or at least, or at least that's like that's not luck. That's like it's forced a, it's circumstance. A seven years bad luck. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Jesus, I hate myself. I'm not um, good with idioms and sayings. Yeah. Well, that's an idiom. Um, you're an idiom. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, seven years without a first round pick. It's kind of coming back already. They're not going to be able to retain. Leonard Floyd, Troy Hill, John Johnson this offseason, they're going to have to make some cuts to even get under the cap. They're kind of done adding to this roster. And in the NFL, as we've seen, if you're not adding, usually things go worse. Like, I don't think you can bank on Aaron Donald being Aaron Donald for that much longer. He's just he's going to fall off to a degree. He's not going to be that unstoppable force for the next 
three or four years. Best decision though is Aaron Donald. Donald's 14. Oh, no. What's the best decision over the past five years? Best decision over the past five years was the trades they made before the 2017 season. 18 season? Whatever the one they went to Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. God damn, I should know this. Which one was it? So they traded for a keep to leave and Marcus Peters one offseason. Got themselves a secondary overnight. The reason why they went to the Super Bowl it was the 2018 season. The reason they went to the Super Bowl that you're in fucking should have won if the offense wouldn't have pooped the bed. Yeah. Because you built a secondary overnight without a first-round pick, mind you. That's like, we'll get on board if you're not giving up those valuable draft picks in the first round. By all means, I'll get on board with flipping a two for Marcus Peters. Flipping a, I think it was like a four or five for Aqib Tlaib. That was, that was their match. Talk about an all-time shit-talking defense. Yeah. Peters and Tlaib would get in your dome and stay there. Set up camp. Build yeah. a fire. And receivers, man, I, talking to a lot of draft prospects, pass rushers, offensive tackles, receivers, and corners, I feel like there's this one-on-one, -on -one, you know, there's this, like, game within a game with those positions where, like, getting into the mental side of it is important. Like, you can break a guy's will with how you, you know, talk shit about a guy, which is interesting. But um, Worse than beard eye, too. Huh? Worse, worse than beard eye, too. I swear to God, it does. Uh, the other thing I wanted to um, mention about the Los Angeles Rams is, like, don't you think that, no, obviously this was draft decision, but the best front office decision the Los Angeles Rams have made in recent years is Sean McVay. Like he yeah. has like propped up Jared yeah. Goff and taken this offense to legitimacy, similar to what Kyle Shanahan has done in San Francisco with what I would argue is not a top ten, top fifteen quarterback in Jimmy G. Like yeah, and coaching salaries don't account don't count against the cap. Yeah. Like they are arguably very valuable if you can get it. It's a good gig if you can get it. If you can get a coach that can have the success with mid-tier quarterbacks that McVay and Shanahan are capable of. Yeah. That is huge. That that helps you out a ton. Also, they do a really good job of bringing in coordinators and delegating. You've seen that with Brandon Staley in the Los Angeles Rams. Obviously, Robert Salah, the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. Those are very very good coaches that have done a lot of good things on the football field. I think Bill Belichick gets brought up. Yeah, when you are like a that when you are a quality football mind, I feel like you can identify other quality football minds. No, You're like, oh, course. this defense is fucking tough. To I mean, go it's a big reason why they hired Zach Robinson, former PFF analyst. Exactly. Who's now like, their Slug. wide receivers coach. Bobby Slug, former PFF analyst, works for those two. Nice. Uh, Miami Dolphins' worst decision, ignoring the offensive line and then just throwing the yep. kitchen sink at it this past year. Yeah. So between 2016 and 2019, the only guys they drafted before the fifth, I want to say, on the offensive line were Laramie Tunsil and Michael Dieter. And it wasn't that good before that, man. Like, it, it had been bad pretty much that entire span. Went elsewhere. And then again, they kind of had that panic draft of, oh, shit, we got our new franchise quarterback. We have to now protect them. Every other pick after that's got to be offensive line. And, you know, Kinley, Jackson, they struggled. Hunt was all right, but, like, they weren't – they didn't solve it right away because that's not how the vast majority of offensive line works. So – You'd not, you got to draft him before you need him. And they kind of just didn't. And now they're reeling to try to figure out what to do. But it also is their, and, and the thing is, their best pick over that span was the Laramie Tunsil pick. Like that was their best pick. They got a top tier left tackle at 13 because of a gas mask bong video that was released by his stepfather, right? On draft day. Yeah. An all time draft slide move. Good Lord. That's on me. And then they flip him into two first-round picks that can now rebuild their offensive line. That was 
a hell of a play. It's about as good of a first-round pick at non-quarterback as you can make. Jumping now to the phone call I just got. No, just kidding. Uh, Minnesota Vikings, worst decision they've made, Garrett Bradbury at number 18 in 2019. And this, this one's because it's going to keep – one, they had a center on the – Pat Elfline was a, was a fine center. And they drafted Bradbury because they were moving to an outside zone scheme. He was the best, you know, quote-unquote, outside zone center in the draft. And so they thought they could move Elfline to the guard. So you ruined a guy who was fine at center by flipping, flipping him to guard and making another position bad. And then Bradbury is in that zone of offensive linemen where he's too good as a run blocker to bench or replace, but he's so bad in pass protection, they still liability. Pass protection grades of 38.8 and 41.4 his first two seasons. Bottom three in the NFL both years. You, I don't foresee that changing, man. Like, he was not a young prospect coming out. He was not. He was a polished, like, that was his thing. But he's just so, he's slightly built, and he has T-Rex baby arms, and he's going up against Kenny Clark twice a year. <laughs> I mean, he is as good as he's, I mean, because I remember we coveted him coming out of NC State for his run blocking, his ability yeah. to move in and zone. And, those... and he still is. He's a very good outside zone center. Yeah. That's why teams fell in love with him. What but we Pat? kept saying, he's not, wasn't what, top 40 on our board because the dude's got concerns about his pass protection. Well, what about the best decision? Best decision was this past year. I mean, to flip Stefan Diggs for a first-round pick. And just the one first-round pick was, I think, middling conversation for com- compensation for a talent like Diggs. I think they got boned because that was after the DeAndre Hopkins trade, right? So they got boned by DeAndre Hopkins getting nothing. And so kind of the starting point for wide receiver trades at that point was a stupid second rounder and a running back. So they kind of got boned by that. But to then flip that for a first rounder and get a cheaper replacement with that pick who is comparable in skill, Justin Jefferson year one, it's a dub. Big. Dub. All right, New England Patriots. We are moving through here. Only a few teams left. New England Patriots, wide receivers, man. I mean, Malcolm Mitchell, Devin Lucian, Braxton Berrios, Nikhil Harry, like they have not been able to find it at the receiver position. Yeah, the receivers they drafted over that span have combined for 120 career catches and 1,324 career yards. Yikes. Big yikes. So that was Jefferson obvious. hit that his first year. No, it was close, though. I mean, yeah. I think he had 1,400 yards. I don't think he had 120 catches. Yeah. And flip side, They've been able to identify offensive linemen, whether it's oh, man, yes. Michael Onwenu in the sixth this past year, uh, whether it's Yeldy Froholt. Now, he hasn't actually played, but I love Yeldy Froholt. He's going to be good. In the fourth last year, 2019, 2018, Isaiah Wynn in the first round, developing one of the better tackles in the NFL. Uh, and then they've just been Tooney very good. And then one. Joe Tooney back in the third round, 2016. Like That's quite the hit rate. And they're another team. They've invested in it. There, there are other guys in that list. Yadni Kajust in the third wasn't great, but they've, I think, picked something like eight guys over that span, offense linemen, because they know that that's you got to draft him before you need him. Like they drafted Yeldy Froholt, and he was not going to see the field. Had no plans of him seeing the field. That yeah. New Orleans Saints, worst decision, their consistent mindset of win now, trading up and just trying to be aggressive in every draft. Yeah. Uh, wait. Yeah, they were, that's definitely their worst decision in terms of they gave up so much draft capital, mm-hmm. like the Marcus Davenport trade, all this. They had the fewest picks of any team over the past five years. They've only drafted 28 players over that span. Um, they've just compl- consistently given up, and, and they have an insane hit rate. Like They have been the single best team in identifying talent 
but if you had more picks and had identified them, you would not be in the situation you are and identified talent at that same hit rate. You would not be in the situation you are now where you're going to have to cut pretty much every guy worth of, like you're just gonna have to move on from a lot of guys worth that are starters and, and so their best decision is that just like their ability to evaluate that talent the best decision was i mean that 2017 class was maybe the best draft class of all time outside of the quarterback position in terms of talent evaluation like the guys they got the picks they got them it was marshawn Lattimore pick 11 ryan ramchick at pick 32 those are top five to ten players of their respective positions two of them in the first round marcus williams another top five to ten safety pick 42 helm kamara at 67 that's four four right there alex anzalone pick 76 eh. but then trey hendricks at 103 they got some fucking talent in that draft that truly was an all-timer new york giants uh worst decisions kind of obvious we already spoke to this a little bit but the saquon barkley decision at two i do think is it's just from a value perspective as good as saquon barkley is does not yeah need rehab when they drafted him and i talk about i've been talking about cap a lot but like when they drafted him he was the top five highest paid running back in the nfl like that's again just complete disregard of positional value and understanding of like he could be a great player Mm -hmm. you are not maximizing the value of that number two overall pick i'm sorry what about best decision? They have, and we kind of give Gettleman some shit for his defensive tackle addiction, but he's been good at evaluating the position. He knows the guys that work out, um, whether it's you know, Dexter Lawrence, uh, B.J. Hill. He drafted now, I think, before he was there. They drafted Dalvin Tomlinson, but they've the, those are the three DTs they've drafted in the first three rounds, and all the three of those guys are quality DTs. So there you go. Jumping now to the New York Jets, a year late on the quarterbacks. I think that and that has been definitely like rough. Man. I mean, the Jets in the quarterback position have just not had a good time of late. It's easy to look back and play hindsight, whatever. But 2017, they were rolling in with Josh McCown as their starter in 2017, thinking Christian Hackenberg or Bryce Petty, might, this might be the year they turn it on. And so they passed on Patrick Holmes and Sean Watson. Yeah, they drafted a good player, but that was a fucking bad decision yeah. in retrospect. I mean, and they were in a position to make a similar decision at number two, where you kind of consistently see them either mock Devontae Smith or trading down and picking up Kyle Pitts. Yeah. They're in a similar position where, like, hey, you want to bank on this development from Sam Darnold. You're not potentially passing on the next Patrick Holmes. I don't know if there will be a next yeah. Patrick Holmes, but you're passing on a quarterback class that's very good. Yeah. Chris Sims' number one overall quarterback might be there at two. <laughs> I, I honestly, like, I do think that you could get a very talented quarterback prospect at two. Yeah. Banking on this year's, you know, Sam Darnold, you know, Sam Darnold to kind of put it together would be a similar decision to trying to think that Hackenberg or Bryce Petty was going to put it together. But um, what's their best decision? The best decision was ultimately maximizing then Jamal Adams' trade value. Like getting two first rounders for Jamal Adams when Stefan Diggs couldn't net you two first rounders. When a lot of guys got moved, couldn't net to get a guy who had been a box safety. You know, he, he's a little different than your average box safety and what he brings to the table. But to get a box, to get two first rounds for box safety is a hell of a deal for them. Philadelphia Eagles relying on defensive back development, worst decision over the past five years. Yeah, so they they had that. It was the it was the draft where you know, Cindy Jones, Rasul Douglas, Avante Maddox, Jalen Mills. 
they had that young core that they thought this is going to be our secondary. Like these guys are going to develop. That's what we're going to replenish. That's going to be, it's going to maximize our Super Bowl window. It, it didn't happen. None of those guys turned out to be good at all for the Eagles and never sort of flipped any more draft capital at that position or at those positions. And that's why their defense turned into shambles, even though defensive line never really kind of went away. Defensive line was good after the Super Bowl for a couple of years. They're similarly at the similar level, but just they didn't have the horses to get done in the back end. Best decision? It was the play for Wentz. They don't go to that Super Bowl without Wentz taking them to 10-2 and two before he went down. And that's... They just don't. I mean, like Nick Foles starts every game that year. It's difficult to see him actually win a Super Bowl. Yeah, because they hit so, the high end of his range of outcomes that year, where he yep. was good on third downs, good in the red zone, good under pressure, and it worked. That, that's Arguably the MVP if he doesn't get hurt. Yep. So that's like why we say the play, quarterback, payoff. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Steelers' worst decision over the past five years, head scratchers in the secondary. Artie Burns, Terrell Edmonds, those decisions – Probably would like to have those back. And those were two, those were similar to what we were talking about with, you know, May, some May decisions where everyone at the time was saying that's too high. Yeah. People had, you know, almost borderline UDFA grades on Terrell Edmonds because, like, that was how he looked at Virginia Tech. Artie Burns was kind of thought of as firmly late day two cornerback. To add insult to injury, the guys drafted after Artie Burns, the next cornerback was Xavier Howard. After Terrell Evans, the next safety was Jesse Bates. So that's, that's not really how it works. But like their evaluations, their reaches on guys, they reached over elite players of their respective positions. Best decision? TJ Watt, dude. That 2017 edge class, I need to go back and actually look at all the names. Yet, but it was kind of similar to this year's edge class where there was a lot of interesting names, a lot of like talented dudes, but no real consensus sort of ranking. No real, like all a real pick or poison at the top like six or so six or seven because that was the one that had solomon thomas uh that had Derek barnett you had okay miles garrett was at the top and then solomon thomas Derek barnett you could see different evaluations on the, these guys all over the map tack mckinley taco charlton and all those guys went for tj watt the only guy who's arguably as good or better than tj watt is miles garrett who went number one overall in that draft so Hell of a pick for the Steelers. San Francisco 49ers, worst decision. Trading back from two to three was a good one, but picking Solomon Thomas at three in that class, that did not pan out. Yeah, that was, man. And, and that's why when we say a guy doesn't win off the edge, Gregor Russo, when we haven't seen him beat tackles, that it's worrisome. It's not the same. It is a different skill set to beat guards than it is to beat off its tackles. Some guys are great against tackles, can't kick inside, save their lives. Some guys can own guards and will just go on the outside and can't get to the edge. That was kind of Jadavion Clowney's problem. That was Solomon Thomas's problem at Stanford. When he was uh, an edge rusher, he was legitimately bad that year, his final year at Stanford. Freak athlete, great size, all this whatever, but it's still a skill. <clears throat> and he never developed on the edge. He probably should have just kept bulking up and getting the defense tackle because that's really the only thing place you look good at. Best decision for the San Francisco 49 This one's easy. George Kittle, 146 overall in 2017. And, and that's Didn't he also have like only like 18 catches at Iowa the year yeah. before? Like he, he had was, very little, very small sample size coming out, but and, he was a blocking machine. And that's why like the tight end position, 
gets a low sample size. You don't get the targets in college. Not a lot of guys get the targets or the usage or anything that makes you feel good about the projection of them in the NFL. And so that's why uh, he fell at 146 overall, despite being obviously a freak athlete. He tested like monster at the combine. Seattle Seahawks, worst decision over the past five years. There's a lot. They, they am draft. They're one of the worst drafting teams, if not the worst drafting team over that span. It's crazy looking back when the 2010 and 2012 Seahawks drafts are individually both all-time drafts. You talk about you know, Russell Okun, Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor in one, Bobby Wagner, Russell Wilson in another. Hall of Famers, multiple, in two different drafts that they had. And then DK Metcalf and Chris Carson, the only competent starters they've gotten over the last five years. Just brutal history unfortunately for them and then the dk metcalf obviously that their best draft decision over that span he's he's still he's in the derwin james class of how the hell does that guy fall yeah. to that spot 64 overall how he's 6'4 225 and runs a 433 with a 40 inch vertical it's just and was not bad in college in terms of you know how he produced it was not it was not like he was a complete, like, Moritz Behringer. You got to teach this guy football. Yeah. No, not at all. So that, that one was – and they took advantage of it. Last three teams here. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, worst decision or worst de- – yeah, worst draft decision over the past five years. It's 2016 draft, man. Whew. It's honestly amazing looking back at it. Vernon Hargraves at 11. They didn't make it to the end of his rookie deal. Noah Spence at 39. <laughs> then Roberto Aguayo. That, the, the GM of the year, my opinion, this past year in terms of obviously they won the Super Bowl because of Jason Light's moves the past two or three years and this past offseason. But to get Roberto Aguayo at 59, he's the same guy who drafted Roberto Aguayo at 69. It's just like hilarious to me. I mean, it, does, it does speak to like the lottery system that is the draft. Like the best GM you know, in Jason Light yeah. hit on a very good draft the past yeah. two or three years. Yeah. And then... In 2016, went Hargraves, Spence, and Aguayo back to back to back picks. Yeah, and it's and that's why like the best decision that he made, in my opinion, was committing to the secondary. That was his best draft decision. Tristan Wirfs, amazing pick, like the best, one of the best picks in this past year's draft outside of the quarterback position. Maybe the best in terms of the talent they got, where they got him, all pro right tackle from day one, won them the Super Bowl. His ability to shut down Cam Jordan and Zadarius Smith invaluable. To them winning the Super Bowl. I don't think it's a great decision because everyone and their mother is drafting Tristan Wurst at that spot. Yeah. He was the last tackle available. They were he actively w- trying to trade up and get his ass, though. Okay, it's easy to say on the outside, yeah, Tristan Wurst, we had him as an number one tackle going forward. You're going to say that mm-hmm. on the outside. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But the decision to then, like, whoever was there, if it was Mekhi Becton, if it was Jedrick Wills, if it was Andrew Thomas, they were going to pick. It was They were going to get whoever was the last one. They got the best one of the last, as the last one. Like good on them. But the fact that the Antoine Winfield drafting him at forty-five when they didn't need a safety, drafting Sean Bunting, Jamel Dean, back to back in twenty nineteen when they could have thought Vernon Hargraves this year he turns it on. That was year three for Vernon Hargraves, or I guess year four for Vernon Hargraves. Kind of like, did the opposite of what the Eagles did, like banking on development in the secondary. Yes. But they said, hey, even go. this guy develops or not, like we need more players. We need guys in the secondary. And that was a year after going MJ Stewart, Carlton Davis in yeah. 2018. No one no one cares that MJ Stewart, would he get cut this past year or wasn't good at all? No one cares because 
all the other guys turned out well, you know? Yeah, makes sense. All right, last two teams. Tennessee Titans, worst decision. This one's obvious. Isaiah Wilson at 29. Now I don't even know if he's going to play with the team. He hasn't been officially released, but it's looking that way. Yeah, it's easy to... This one could be a... It would be revisionist history to have said, give up on Marcus Mariota sooner. He was... There were people I remember back in, I think this was 2016 or 17, really beating their chest about Mariota being much better than Jameis Winston. Mariota winning that. You know, People who had Mariota eval over Winston were really being like yeah that's true and they fell off like there's something happened there was not even the same guy that we saw from early on in his career uh so it would be revisionist history to say oh they should have drafted Mahomes or Watson because they passed on them for Corey Davis but that was not how it was at the time but Isaiah Wilson at 29 at the time was not good and still not good all right best decision it's a 2019 draft, man. They had one heck of a draft in 2019. Jeffrey Simmons stopping his slide at number 19 overall uh, after the ACL. Not everyone would have done that. Draft a guy who was not going to play, maybe even for his entire rookie season. They did it. They've reaped the benefits. A.J. Brown in the second. Nate Davis in the third. He got all pro votes, Nate Davis. I don't know if you know that. I, I do don't know. know how he got that, but he got all pro votes. And then Imani Hooker in the fourth. That's a... David Long in the sixth, like that's a, it's just a solid yeah. top to bottom draft. And at, going through, this is an interesting thing I found going through all these drafts the past five years of everybody. John Robinson, I think, has a philosophically most similar to what we do at PFF in terms of he's not drafting super, he, he values on field production more so than super traits. Corey Davis was not a super traits guy and maybe came back to bite Corey Davis example. Rashawn Evans was not a super traits guy. AJ Brown is a good athlete, but not a, he's also productive as hell. Yeah. Productive as hell. Jeffrey Simmons, um, Jack Conklin, Harold Landry, Jack Conklin, the top 10 was not a super traits guy. That was so Harold Landry as well. Um, he was not that's not been necessarily his mo definitely values production i've heard yeah. i've had conversations with guys at pff that talk to john robinson a ton about you know pff and grading and those things mm-hmm. so i definitely think he factors it in uh last team here washington football team worst decision dwayne haskins at 15 in 2019 when at the time i think it when pff was offering analysis i thought i thought and i think other people here worth thought shot. it was a good decision like it was worth the shot at 15 but mm-hmm. obviously that did not pan out i think that speaks again to development you know, we talked about Chris Sims earlier. I think Chris Sims had Dwayne Haskins as good as, you know, as good as he's been with evaluating some prospects. You look, he had Joe Burrow and then Justin Herbert in 2020. Kyler Murray's the number one guy. But, but again, Haskins is not, it wasn't talent related. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I, what I was going to say is Chris Sims had Dwayne Haskins as number three quarterback in that yeah. class. We had him as a top 20 player in that class. I think it was largely development off field. Again, it speaks to that thing I've been talking about where, yeah. Hire this guy a personal assistant, man. Hire this guy some a psychologist. He needs help being a professional. That, that's not a condescending thing to say. A lot of people need help being a professional, especially yeah. at Dwayne Haskins was, what, 20 years old when he was drafted? Yeah. You don't think I needed help to be a professional at 20 years old? Like a babysitter. You just give him a babysitter. Babysitter is condescending too, give him, a bo- give him a bottle when he starts crying. You're being a dick. <laughs> I, but I'm serious, though. I'm serious about getting some of these guys. He's 20-year-old. Oh. So you're asking to get – here's the keys to the franchise. He probably got enough bottles over the course of his washing. Hey, ease up. Those weren't strippers. It was his girlfriend's birthday. They were dancers. <laughs> anyway, best decision for the football team over the past few years? Jeremy McLaurin. 
got him at number 76 overall in the 2019 NFL draft. Number one type of wide receiver. And it is funny looking back at this, how many guys the guys were saying are the best picks. You got a bunch of wide receivers. You got Kenny Galladay, Justin Jefferson, Terry McLaurin, DK Metcalf. You got a bunch of quarterbacks. And you got a few safeties mixed in there with uh, Jesse Bates and whatnot, Justin Simmons. But in a position we'd say is very valuable, safety. It's just I think that's interesting to see. Not a lot of Saquon Barkley was the best picks. Not a lot of, uh, you know, like not a lot of running backs, not a lot of guards that you're saying, oh, that guard, Frank Ragnow, fuck. That got him. Mm. Mm -hmm. Got him over the top. Maybe that's some flash bias on our part, but like the numbers would suggest those are the guys bringing value to the table. Uh, the note I'll add there before we break and jump into the interviews with Carlos Boogie Basham Jr. and Patrick Sertan is that someone asked me recently, well, what are my favorite interviews of all time? You know, interviewing prospects and those things. I will say Jonah Williams is up there. Before he went to the Bengals, he was awesome. The other one is Terry McLaurin. I interviewed him after that matchup with Darius Slay a few years ago, and that was the first time I talked to the kid. He is absolutely brilliant. In addition to 4-3 speed, in addition to being a very efficient route runner and athletic, he is a very smart motherfucker who uh, really gets it and understands like how to attack leverages and how to work against different players and stuff like that. So McLaurin, a steal for the Washington football team. That's going to do it. That was a long pod, dude. We went in. We went in on all 32 teams. Best and worst decision for all 32 teams. We are going to do a mailbag soon. If you want to get in the mailbag, leave a five-star review, rate, review, and subscribe. Leave a five-star review. Drop your question in there. We are doing more mailbags as we approach the NFL draft. We're going to try and fit in as many bonus mailbags as possible. We did that a week ago. We're going to continue to do that to catch up before free agency. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Until then, let's go ahead and jump to Carlos Boogie Basham and then Patrick Sertan of Alabama. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions. Like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Joining the 241 Drafts podcast is former Wake Forest edge defender, Carlos Boogie Basham Jr. Carlos, great to have you on. You, we've been... Me and Mike, my, my podcast co-host, have been big fans of your game for a while, man. We've been talking about you since 2019, and I have been really impressed with what you've done. This 2020 season was a wild one, obviously with COVID-19 impacting the season, but still showed up to play and now entering the 2021 NFL Draft. Boogie, great to have you on the show. Good to be here. Thank you. You're out there enjoying the glorious Phoenix weather. I think you said it's in the 70s before we jumped on. Cincinnati, a little different in the 10s, 20s, but we'll, we'll live. What are you doing out there with Exos? What are you working on? Uh, you know, mainly just, you know, basic combine prep, uh, a lot of speed work, uh, a lot of agility, you know, there's just a bunch of strength work as well. Are there any specific drills that you're prioritizing? You're like, man, I got to nail this one. Are you setting any goal time, say like for the 40, 10 yard split, three cone, any of that stuff? Uh, my 40, you know, I'm shooting for four or five, you know, and then all those oh, other wow. <laughs> yeah. and all those other times, you know, it's just, I'm going to shock a lot of people, you know, just like with my athleticism with it when it comes with that. Dude, four or five would be bonkers, man. That is incredible. What what do you what did you play at this past season weight wise? Uh, I was around two between two eighty five and two eighty. And, and do you plan to stay at that weight? Have any NFL teams asked you to bulk up, slim down, any of that stuff? 
Uh, you know, they, they were just like, get it your comfortable, your goal weight. Uh, my comfortable weight is around 275, between that little range right there. You dropped to 275, clock of 4-5, man. There, there'll be a lot more people talking about you than just me and Mike. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> that is uh, very impressive, man. Uh, so in the you know little ex- limited experience you've had talking with teams, have you gotten any feedback on where they want to play you in the NFL? Are they seeing you as this kind of wide nine edge defender? Do they want to kick you inside and stuff? I'd be interested to know like, how teams see you from a positional standpoint. Uh, you know, mostly all of them, they, they say I can play all across the board. Uh, just in college, you know, I went from pl- – playing over zero to three to five, uh, being able to cover guys and cover it. So, you know, they're like, you, they're like, yeah, you're a, a nice little chess piece. You know, you fit anywhere. So, you know, I just take that into account when I'm training, uh, not just working on edge drills, but also, you know, doing linebacker work and also D tackle work. So pretty much, you know, they say I can just play anywhere across the board. And I think that multi-gap versatility is massive for you in an edge class where it's a lot of guys that, you know, are freaky athletes, and, but thinner frames. You know, you're one of the bigger edge defenders in this class, at least that's being talked about at the top end. So I do think that multi-gap versatility is one of the strengths. What are some of the other strengths that you feel like separate you in this edge class? For me, I would definitely say just my IQ of football. You know, just going from high school to college, you know, high school playing mainly offense, you know, there's a, you learn a lot just playing both sides of the ball. And then going to college, you know, just playing strictly defense, you know, you can pick out a lot of things the offense is doing a lot faster than some guys do. So I feel like my football IQ is what it's something. So, so give me an example of that, of, you know, football IQ showing up on the football field for you, playing along the defensive line. What, where does that show up? For me showing, you know, just like in situational football, you know, just picking out the defensive coordinators, uh, tendencies, and, you know, certain down the distances and, uh, and just like realize who you're going against. You know, some people are passing teams and, you know, third down, you know, whether they, you know, whether they can go and run for it or throw it. Then, you know, you have those teams who are like, it's fourth for short, you know, whether they're going for it, but they go punt it, you know, just, just picking up those tendencies of the coaches and the quarterbacks, you know, and then also, you know, just picking up on the uh, quarterback's audibles. That's a big thing for defensive ends. I'm glad you brought up, you know, playing both sides of the ball in high school. You played tight end in high school. You also played center for the basketball team. Were you a stretch four, stretch forward? Were you shooting threes or you all low post? So talk to me about your game on the court. Uh, court, you know, just high school, you know, I had, I had to play down low just because of, you know, the height differential uh, <laughs> between the team. But, yeah, and I would say, like, I was all over the court, uh, especially in, in travel basketball. We had a couple six eight guys, six nine. So, you know, that was when I was able to, you know, show my guard potential, sh- shoot a little bit. <laughs> Where, did, did you ever consider pursuing basketball in college or when did football really take over for you? Uh, football, it took over around my sophomore year. I had a couple of Division One basketball looks, but it wasn't nothing major. But, you know, then football came. I was like, you know, this is my bread and butter. This is going to be able to get me out of get me out of here, help my family. So that's what I kind of took off of. I mean, that's because they were playing you out of position. They play you at point guard the whole way through. I bet you you're playing for freaking Gonzaga right now. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> um, I'm interested to talk more about your game at Wake Forest and specifically kind of what goes into a given game week for you from a film perspective. You brought up football IQ, and I think film is like one of the number one things when you're specifically for pass rusher, like looking at the opposing offensive tackle you're going to go against, seeing how he sets, seeing how what his pre-snap looks compared to run and pass. What are you looking for when you're watching an offensive lineman that you're about to go against in the given game week? On a game week, you know, we get in the week, uh, that's, those are our first and second down days. So it's mainly just, you know, run stop. So you know, I'm picking up on whether he's like a high puncher, low, uh, like what he does when he's pulling, you know, how's, how's he at the point of attack? Then like towards the end of the week, around Wednesday and Thursday, this is a straight third down day. So, you know, I'm looking at other guys he's went against, seeing what moves he's, uh, what moves work against him, you know, can he move his feet well? 
how's he doing like power rushes. So that's maybe like my my little thing going into game week. Wednesdays and Thursdays sound like boogie days if those are pass rush days, I'll say that. But I do think that, you know, what pass rush moves so Going against a certain offensive tackle, you can obviously see like, okay, he's susceptible to these types of moves, but do you have a primary move and a primary counter that you like to try against everyone, or does that really change week to week? Uh, week to week, uh, just it, it doesn't matter who I'm going against. You know, I always want to set them up with pouts with speed first. You know, seeing, seeing if they can beat seeing – seeing if I can beat them to that point of attack. You know, if I beat them there, I'm going right around them. But, you know, my counter is just, you know, to swim over. You know, if, I'm, if, if he gets me there first and I'm face-to-face with him, I'm going to come inside of him every time. There you go, man. That you have it. You have it down pat. The the other thing I want to ask you about is how, how much time. So you mentioned, you know, Monday, Tuesdays, early down days, Wednesday and Thursdays come to pasture days. How much time during the season do you get to work with a positional coach on specifically pass rush moves? Are you do you have a lot of opportunities to like expand your tool belt and add moves to your list? Uh, I would say not. It's not as much as during the season, just because you know all the all the things the coaches have to go through. But mainly for me, it's just being able to, in the off season. Mm-hmm. Able to go down because uh, this past these past two summers I went down to Florida to work with uh, Nathan O'Neill, great password coach. So you know it's just those two summers like that really helped me separate myself from everyone else. And, and now, how much how, how much are you working on password moves now as you prepare for the pro day? And how much film are you watching? Are you watching film on yourself? Are you watching film on NFL guys to take some of their moves? I'd be interested to know like what you're working on to improve your on field play right now. I'll say right now, mainly it's just me just working on my takeoff, you know, playing at a, a heavier weight than I usually play. You know, this just comes into play of, you know, just keep working at it, working at it. And then film, you know, we have film sessions every Saturday, uh, not just watching yourself, but, you know, watching watching other defensive ends and also watching uh, offensive tackles, you know, going against in the league. It's just like just a little mix and match of everything that we would do. Are there any NFL players that you kind of cater your game after? You know, on a PFF's draft guide, we do have it as Marcus Davenport as a comparable player. Similar size, a guy that's added pass rush moves in the NFL, but I'm interested to know who you think kind of resembles your game at the next level. I would definitely say I watch a lot of Jason Pierre, Paul, and Demarcus Lawrence. So those are mm-hmm. two guys I've been studying for the longest. Uh, you know, just the way, just their play styles, you know, across the board, you know, how hard they play. You know, I take that. That's a big thing for me, just how hard you play, you know, how hard you go. And just watching those two guys, you know, I fell in love with their game style, you know, how they play. Not enough people bring up Jason Pierre-Paul when I say that. Everyone's like Aaron Donald, Miles Garrett, Khalil Mack. Jason Pierre-Paul, underrated player there, especially from a motor and effort standpoint, a guy that really just never turns it off. Um, I'd be interested, too, like another question I had for you was be, um, when you're getting to the NFL, like what's your what's your plan of impact? How do you want to impact as a rookie? Do you have goals for yourself in year one, in year two, like how you want to impact an NFL team early in your career? Uh, early in my career, you know, I want to come in, you know, just play my role. You know, I don't want to just come in and be the cocky guy. You know, I want to be the one who learns from the veterans around me, you know, pick up a little things. You know, in the league, you know, everyone's good. So, you know, just, you know, being able to pick those little things apart of what can get me around that, you know, all pro tackle I'm going against or, you know, just pick up the defense way faster than others. Going back to your pass rush moves, I'd be interested to know pre-snap what goes through your head when you're setting up that pass rush plan, whether it's in that first few drives or even later in the game. What are you thinking about on obvious passing downs to kind of set up moves and, and pre-snap pass rush plans? Uh, you know, my first thing is always a good takeoff because in pass rush, that's the most important thing. Without the takeoff, you ain't got nothing. So, you know, once you get that good takeoff, you know, it's all about from then on, it's just on who you are, like whether you're a power rusher, whether you're a speed rusher, whether you're a finesse guy. You know, for me, I'm more of a power rusher, but also a little speed. So, you know, when I get to that point, it's you not know, I can either go both ways. You know, it kind of makes it a little hard for tackles I go against. 
Yeah, I mean, you're power first, but you run in the four fives. I think speed might have to be in the conversation here, Boogie. I'll, I'll definitely say that. I think the, the, the other thing with, you know, edge rushers and offensive tackles, I think there's a, a very similar matchup with corners and wide receivers. And I feel like there's a mental side of the game as well. You know, talking a little trash, getting into the guy's, you know, getting the guy's head a little bit. How much of that goes on between you and an opponent in a given week? Uh, you know, with me, I'm not just – I'm not the guy who goes out there and just talks trash. But for me, you know, if it's like a big game, you know, history behind the game, you know, it's just a drill to get the rushing. Sometimes you may be a school that didn't, you know, offer you or something. You know, it's always just something behind you that gets you going. But for me personally, you know, I just go out there. I play hard. You know, if I don't really talk trash first, well, yeah, so, yeah sometimes <laughs> it'll come out first. I ain't going to lie. <laughs> sometimes you have to i mean you watch you know michael jordan in that documentary he, he creates reasons to get upset at his opponent he creates reasons to get more competitive i definitely think there's a it adds a fire to the game we can finish with this carlos and i really appreciate the time um what do you think is your why what's your motivation to be as successful as you are in the nfl my motivation you know just seeing you know growing up i was the only child you know seeing my mom and dad you know work in day in day out just giving me life i have you know, just looking in the crowd and seeing them happy, that's what that's what drives me. You know, especially this past year, getting my degree, you know, that's as happy as I've seen them been. So, you know, that's that's why I do it, you know, just for them. You know, being the only child growing up, you know, it's just you and your parents growing up. So that, that's my why. You know, I love my parents to death. They know I do anything for them. So, you know, I'm just doing this for them, you know, just to be the second second or third person in my family that play professional, professional sports is big for me. And then just being able to see them smile day in and day out regardless of what happened. That's what, that's what gets me going. Family first, man. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for, for jumping on, and I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Sir, thank you. Joining the 241 Drafts podcast is former Alabama cornerback Patrick Sertan, obviously son of a former NFL great and Patrick Sertan Sr. Great to have you on the podcast, man. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you for having me on the show. Of course, man. Let's go ahead and start with you know what you're doing right now. I know you're out there in Phoenix working at Exos to prepare for a future pro day for Alabama. Uh, I'm sure you're doing you know all of the drills to prepare for that combine. But are there, are there any drills specifically where you're placing added emphasis or have heightened goals for right now? Are you like looking to really have you know big time for the forty three cone or any drills that like you're really trying to hit on? Uh, the forty. I'm really focused like on the forty because teams um knocking my speed right now. So. You know, I'm just focusing on that right now because I know the position drills is just going to carry itself. You know, I've been doing it for the longest, so I'm not very worried about position drills. I'm just really focused on the 40. So that's my main emphasis right now. Yeah, totally makes sense, man. And then what what weight did you play at this past this past season? And then uh, what weight are you planning to kind of play at next year? Um, I played like at 203, 204 around that range. And I'm looking to um, stay at that weight or even get it a little lighter, mm-hmm. you know, uh, based on my how I feel at that weight. I feel like I could play smooth and very sound at that weight. And, and when is your pro day? When do you plan to run the 40? Uh, March 23rd. Gotcha. March 23rd. Cool, man. Well, I, I want to turn back the clocks a little bit before we talk about, you know, your obviously star-studded campaign at Alabama. You're a former five-star, went to American Heritage, and you played opposite of another former five-star in Tyson Campbell. I mean, you guys went, I think, undefeated for back-to-back seasons, won two state championships there. Can I get a story from one of those seasons about you guys just, like, locking people down? Like, that's got to be the best cornerback tandem high school football really has ever seen. Did you ever have teams just, like, not be able to throw the football on you guys? Well, you know, that's how it really be, though, because it was like 
um, our D coordinator, Chad Wilson, which is Marco dad, he just really put us on islands on each of our sides. Like he wasn't worried about what happened on the outside. Yeah. Cause you know, teams wasn't going really try to throw our way. So it was basically, it made his job much easier and it made the defense schemes much easier knowing that opposing teams would really throw the ball at um, each, each wave where we was uh, defending them at. So, you know, I think that time was the most fun times, most fondest times of my years. <laughs> I mean, it had to have been. And, and I'm sure, you know, what, what what was your relationship or what is your relationship like with Tyson Campbell? I'm sure there was a lot of competitiveness between you two. Who's going to get more interceptions? Who's allowing more touchdowns? What is that relationship like and how much did you guys kind of fuel each other? Uh, it's like a brotherhood relationship. I've been knowing Tyson since ever since I was like nine, eight years old. So just watching us get to this point, get to this next level, you know, it's a blessing for both of us. And, you know, we're high competitive athletes at the same time. Um, you know, it's just, like I said before, you know, just watching us grow since from high school to college, you know, to the pros now, you know, I think it's just the ultimate blessing. And did you guys ever go one-on-one? -on -one? I know now you guys are both playing corner, probably don't see a lot of receiver, but I'm sure in high school, you guys have gone one-on-one -on -one against each other a handful of times. Anyone win those reps? What you mean by that? Like, did you guys, did you guys ever do like wide receiver corner on one-on-ones between each other? Cause I'm sure in high school, you know, you're playing both sides a little bit more. I'm sure you maybe had an opportunity to do that. Uh, no, nah, we never did that. Really? Oh man. That would have been awesome. I, I know, that, I know um, some practices coaches put us on offense for a uh, specific amount of plays um, going into the week, but we never like went against each other as far as receiver DB wide go receiver he go to DB. Nah, we never did that before. Damn, dude. That's I, I would sign up for that. That's pay-per-view right there. I'm ready to see it, dude. Let's get it. Let's make it happen. Um, yeah. So, so what What went into that decision for you guys to kind of – obviously, you know, there was opportunities for you both to go to the same school. Like, I'm sure there was probably part of you that wanted to play with Tyson again, like in college. What I think went into – what do you think went into that decision for you to go to Alabama and him to go to Georgia? Uh, I just think it was a decision after all was a, the best decision for him and mm -hmm. the best decision for me. Um, we was thinking about going to the same school at one point. Um, it was basically like, because we was both considering, you know, Alabama High, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, it would have been that situation. But, you know, sometimes you got to do what's best for you. And like I said before, you know, we both performed at a high stage and we did, you know, what we did. Now, looking ahead to you know, the career you did have at Alabama, played a ton of outside corner you know, this past season and had a ton of success, specifically like limiting things downfield and all that stuff. I think some of your best strengths on tape for me, press technique and sticking with guys on the vertical route tree. What do you feel like, though? That's the third-party scout. What do you feel like your strengths are? What separates you in this cornerback class? I just believe my recognition. You know, um, like you said, press skills, off skills, no matter what. You know, I'm techni technically sound. Um, on all phases of a cornerback position. And I feel like I'm going to come up and tackle and be physical with you. That's my main strengths. And, and how much of an impact did you know Trayvon Diggs have? I think you guys have similar skill sets, and they're both long, bigger corners that win at the line of scrimmage. How much of an impact did he have on you, and, and what was that competitive fire like when you guys were playing together? Um, you know, he brought a lot of competitive energy in practice, in the games. Um, I know one time he said, um, don't let none of the receivers catch the pass on you. That should be your mindset, you know, going into every week, every practice. So, um, you know, just having him on the uh, opposite side of me, you know, I just felt like I learned a lot from him. And, um, you know, he's doing great things in the NFL, but um, I feel like just having him on my side, it was just like 
another Batman Robin type of duo, you know, both long, tall corners that's physical at the line. Um, you know, it was it was honestly it made the defensive job much easier. Yeah, I bet. Another former teammate that I would love to talk about is, you know, there's a lot of conversation around these Alabama receivers, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, Jalen Waddell, Devontae Smith. If you had to guard one-on-one, who's who's the best of that group? Can you tell me who the best of that group is? I know that's a hard conversation, but if you can't, talk to me about these guys and just how successful they've been at Bama. That's a tough question. I feel like what makes them like kind of ordinary is that they all got they one specific trait that separates them. Like Smitty, he's a smooth route runner, gonna catch everything. Rug, speedster, vertical threat. Judy releases routes, all that waddle speed releases routes, you know, so um, I just feel like they bring certain things to the table that, you know, opposing defenses don't know which to scout because you can scout one receiver for this, but you got to also look for another receiver and what he's capable of doing. So, you know, it was it was a very, you know, going against some everyday practice made me better as a player, you know. I was talking to Amari Rogers recently, the Clemson wide receiver, and he was saying that they do one-on-ones two days a week, you know, working one-on-ones against cornerbacks. Were you guys doing that at a similar cadence at Alabama? And in those one-on-ones, how much fun was that working against like, honestly, like future first round wide receivers every single week? Um, at Bama, we didn't do one-on-ones. We did like two-on-two slot cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's basically one-on-ones. Just, it's just um a slot in the uh, X receiver and a uh, star in the corner. But you know, going against those guys every day, whether it's in team periods, seven on sevens, you know, I just learned a lot because it made my technique even more fundamentally sound. And, um, you know, because I wouldn't, you want to get those type of caliber receivers every day, every week in the season. So going against them, it felt like a game day experience, you know. And so I want to talk more about your process in a given game week and what you do to prepare for each you know offense that you're going against. How much film are you watching in a given week? And what exactly are you looking for on film from an opposing wide receiver or an opposing offense to make sure that you're you know best prepared? Um, going through the week, you know, I, I take um, majority of the time on film, especially out of the complex, out of the field, you know, on my own time. So I can just get, just understand the opposing team's tendencies, what they like to do out of certain formations, certain concepts, and also looking at their top targets out of each receiver and see what they like to do specifically using that receiver. And also, you know, I just apply it on the field, recognize concepts and recognize plays because we also have meetings before practice. And, um, you know, we go over tons of film, even in meetings. And we also have walkthroughs during practice, which help me, you know, understand other teams' concepts and stuff like that. And you mentioned, you know, earlier that teams are knocking you for your long speed and you want to prove them wrong in the 40, but to make up for not being like a 4-2 guy, is it all consistency and technique? Is it film study? How do you make up for not being like the fastest cornerback out there? Um, I just believe um, that technique wins at the end of the day, technique. And, um, you know, just knowing what you're doing out there helps a lot, you know, because speed is not the – main part of the game it helps but it's not the main part of the game like you said but um I believe my technique and um everything I do that starts at the line that starts at the snap that's what helped me win majority of my snaps who are you know outside of the Alabama guys in the in the receivers you win against who are some of the tougher receivers you win against who are the guys that gave you kind of the most fits at, at corner during my career yeah um I say CeeDee Lamb he was a pretty good receiver um, 
I say Josh Palmer, he was pretty good. The Florida receivers, all those guys. Um, I feel like going against those guys, you know, I I believe they showed, they gave me um, more problems than anything, but, you know, it wasn't crazy and nothing like that, but I believe that they was the top receivers I went against. What, what's your opinion of the Ohio State guys, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson? Oh, I think they they pretty good. Um, I say Garrett is more complete receiver. Chris is the more vertical speed guy that they use. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I think they both are dangerous duo because they could uh, cause havoc on um, opponents' defenses and stuff like that. But I just feel like what they bring to the table is set for their offense. Mm-hmm. You know, they get used in a variety of ways depending on what they need to use them for. So I just felt like I feel like they both great receivers at the end of the day. Obviously, you know, watching a ton of film in season, preparing each week, how does that film study shift in the off season? Do you watch a lot of film on yourself or guys in the NFL? What are you watching right now? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm watching old tapes, even tapes where I feel like I could have done better on, um, looking at my technique, you know, correcting some things in the game. And I also watch a lot of NFL st- film study uh, just to get to know um, – you know, offense in the NFL, because, you know, it's a lot of variety of things, RPOs, um, you know, basically deep vertical, in-breaking, out-breaking, all those type of routes, you know. So I just want to get a feel for that. So I want to have to worry about that once I, once that time comes. Are, are there any NFL cornerbacks that you watch a lot of that you try to, like, pattern your game after? I look at a lot of corners. I look at basically corners that's, like, my body type, you know, my uh, skill set. So I, I look at Jaden Ramsey a lot, um, Tredavious White, Jair Alexander, Stefan Gilmore, all those guys, you know, elite cornerbacks in the league right now, uh, just to get a film of what they do best and what they do that's not so good so I can understand, like, okay, like, because I just look at my body type and I just um, relate that to their game, you know? Well, what do you feel like – I haven't asked a lot of people this, but what do you feel like is the biggest transition – from going to play corner in the NFL or corner in college to playing corner in the NFL. Because I think a lot of people bring up, you know, the contact rule. Like, you know, you could have you could have more contact at corner beyond five yards than you can in the NFL. Is that a big transition or is it more just like the speed of the game? I'd be interested to know what you think like the biggest hurdle is going from college to the NFL, regardless of, you know, talent level, but just being playing corner. Like you said, the hand rules, that's probably a different thing. You know, you got to – you can only jam receivers at – into the five yard line. So I feel like that's the difference, but also, you know, the amount of different receivers you're going to get each and every week in the league, you're going to get bigger, faster, quicker, uh, shiftier receivers in the league and, and, you know, better quarterbacks at that each and every week. So I just feel like, you know, going into the league, it'll be a, it'll be a little step, but I understand like, and the, I feel like the tempo going to be faster as well too. And that's going to be the difference from college and NFL. Yeah, I mean, the competition level is just massive. Like, even playing in the SEC, you're going to see talent in the NFL that's even better than that. And obviously, it just gets better every single week. We can finish with this one. And I think this is a fun question, you know, when talking to any defensive back prospect. It's really, you know, what your opinion is on talking trash. Because I do think it's, you know, it's a game within a game playing corner and going against wide receiver, seeing the same guy over and over, like a Josh Palmer, like the Florida guys. What's your opinion of getting into the mental side of it, talking a little trash, trying to get into the head of your opponent? Um, I'm not that much of a trash talker. I just let my play do the talk. Mm-hmm. But um, I'll say some occasions where I do talk trash, mm-hmm. like 
some points where I feel like I'm on my A game and I need that type of uh, edge um, going towards that game. But, you know, I'm not that much of a trash talker. You know, I just let my play do the talking and um, my preparation do all that. So I, I was talking to some Notre Dame guys, and, and they were saying, man, Alabama's defense, they talk a lot of trash and they're good at it. Who is some of the guys that you've played with that talk a lot of trash and just, like, really, like use that as a part of their game? Mm -hmm. Say it again? Uh, who, who are some guys that you've played with at Alabama that, like, really leverage talking trash and try to be, like, consistently talking on, on that defense? Uh, Christian Bombo. That's what, <laughs> that's what he I've heard. Talk. I've heard he Barmore. Gonna, I heard Barmore yeah. as a chatterbox, man. I heard that guy yeah. talks a ton. He's going he gonna to try to put fear in the opposing O lineman because, uh, you know, he's a big dude, but he's also going to talk trash. You know, he, he's that type of dude where you want to have the edge on the field. You know, he's a mean, nasty guy. So, um, like, he's just going to make sure he had that edge and he's the most – make sure he's the most physical player on the field. You know, I feel like with him, he – really hypes the defense up and motivates the defense. That's awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you setting aside the time and jumping on the podcast. Uh, wish you the best of luck moving forward. Good luck at the Pro Day and then obviously on to the NFL. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me on the show.